notes for introduction. Today is Thursday, September 25th. And I might as well get started with this thing. Get the book rolling with what I've got so far. God knows it isn't taking the direction I assumed it would. This whole thing began when my natural writer's curiosity was aroused by an article I'd read in a weekly periodical. The article was concerned with the commercial aspects of spiritualism and the occult. My original idea was to expose the phonies who were bilking millions of dollars each year out of their gullible victims, to go after the fake mediums, phony astrologers, the self-proclaimed seers, and trick mystics. I was successful at this for some time. The floating face, which was a dummy's head on a wire, the ghost of a woman's son, who turned out to be the medium's own kid in a weird getup, the fortune teller whose life images in a crystal ball were supplied by a hidden film projector. But then I got into this business with Ellen Court. I'd better try to get this down exactly the way it happened. That was not the voice of Carl Kolchak. Instead, that was David Norlis, a writer who has a penchant for debunking the supernatural until he happens upon a particular instance he cannot disprove. The Norlis tapes played on NBC on February 21st, 1973. It stars Roy Tynes as David Norlis. Is it Tynes or Thines? I've heard both. I, I was going to ask you the same question. Yeah, it's, I prefer Tynes. I think it's Thinnest, to be honest with thinnest? you. Thinnest? Oh, man. I, I was going wrong, with like the Ray Fines kind of thing. Thinnest sounds like the least possible one. But like at the same time, the most probable, because that's how you would say it if it was like it's spelled that way. So, Well, it stars that guy. And it also stars Angie Dickinson as Ellen Stern's court and a lot of familiar faces that we'll discuss on this episode where we'll be talking about the Norlis tapes as well as the unfilmed third Kolchak movie, The Night Killers. With me, of course, is my intrepid co-host, Mr. Chris Statue. Hi there. Uh, still trying to figure out what we're talking about. I was under the impression we were talking about Kolchak, not Kolchak. That would be a whole different show. Also with us this week is our guest co-host, Amanda Reyes. Hi. I'm so excited. I love Love, love, love this movie. Spoiler! Yeah, we got in trouble for that. One of our uh, commenters said, oh, no, you guys talked about whether you liked the movie or not before you even talked about the plot. Come on, guys. Yeah, so we, we got taken to task for that one. Sorry, I didn't know that that was a, a rule. It's a byline, if you would. Don't let everyone know that we read stuff online. We actually interact with our listeners. My sensitive <laughs> ego has been bruised already. <laughs> yeah, you got back from Japan and you just came back to that comment. Oh, man. I know. Good yeah. thing you didn't read that while you were over there. You might have committed seppuku. Yeah, I would have gone to that uh, the sea of, sea of trees or the forest of trees or whatever the hell that Gus Van Zandt movie is called. The Suicide Forest? Yeah, with Matthew McConaughey and Ken Watanabe, I would have gone there, never come back. So let's talk about the Norlis tapes, 1973, like I said, and it is Roy as David Norlis, who is a writer, and it takes a little while before we really kind of get into the plot. I would say it takes like nine or ten minutes before we finally actually have those titular Norlis tapes being played. There's a lot of kind of back and forth between he and his editor. Hey, you were supposed to write this book. Well, I did write this book. Well, I didn't actually write it. I recorded it onto these tapes, and you're going to have to listen to these tapes and see what you think about this. And then when his editor comes over, 
Roy's not there. David Norlis isn't there. So the editor has to sit there and listen to these tapes. And then that's kind of our backbone for our story. So it is uh, narrated via cassette tape. I know that's a rather unusual concept, but definitely not anything at all like the Night Strangler or the Night Stalker. Just putting that out there right now. It's the same and it's very different in tone. But yeah, it's kind of the same idea for sure. But I, I like the way that they got kind of straight faced about it personally. Chris, you were ripping into the Night Strangler for being too jokey, and this is the complete opposite of jokey. Like Amanda says, this is very, very straight-laced. That is not at all my problem with this. I have absolutely no problem with the tone of this. It's just, it's like a carbon copy of Kolchak, and not in a good way. It was slow and plodding in a way that the Night Stalker wasn't and it's unfortunate too because roy thines thins whatever we've deemed the way to say his last name he's a rather charismatic actor in the things that i've seen him in other than this so it seems a little strange to me that it just it just kind of it fell really flat for me i kind of more in the amanda camp on this one i actually like this uh, I don't like it as much as Kolchak, because I do like the uh, slight bend of comedy, and I do like where Kolchak is coming from. I get more of Kolchak's personality. When it comes to Norlis, I'm not really sure at the end of the day who this guy is. We kind of get a little bit of glimmer into his past life as we're going through this. And I like those that opening where he's talking about how he's debunked all of these different, you know, psychics. He's kind of this uh, almost like a Harry Houdini type going around and, and figuring out how these, you know, quote unquote mystical things have been done. And then this ends up being the one that stumps him. I almost would have liked to have had almost like a pre-case, maybe like a little bit more of him in action where he does debunk something, kind of that that old trope of like show, don't tell. I think maybe in the in, of course, they only had, you know, so many minutes. This is a television movie, so they don't have all the time in the world. But if they might have started it off with him actually debunking a case, I think that might have worked a little bit better than him talking about it, because he seems to fall into that this is actually supernatural i won't say easily but a lot quicker than if this were allowed to breathe a little bit more than he would have you know had time to say well i don't really necessarily believe this he needed to go from scully more into Mulder, as opposed to he kind of falls into Mulder really quickly i think that the general criticism of this movie is that uh roy thinnis is a little bit more aloof and if i'm correct when they filmed this movie uh he was actually a little bit aloof on set now i've met roy thinnis and um he's very nice he seemed to be really charmed by the fact that i was drooling all over him so <laughs> that was nice but but from what i had read when i first kind of discovered the movie a few years ago was that basically people were turned off by the fact that it was like Kolchak, but it was lacking that sort of charisma that Darren McGavin has. Also, I think something that's really important to remember about Kolchak is that not only is he an everyman, but he's an everyman in the class system as well. He's not just like a really cool guy you want to have a beer with. He really is like down on his luck. 
and he's a guy that's very easily uh, relatable in a lot of ways. Roy Thinnes is obviously very um, affluent in this. His apartment is amazing. He lives in San Francisco, so you know it's already really expensive. He has this gorgeous, gorgeous apartment. All the locations are really beautiful. Everybody's rich. And while I know that that was kind of um, a staple in TV movies, I'm thinking of like Sweet Sweet Rachel and all those great gothic kind of the house that wouldn't die sort of movies where you feel like people don't need to have a job. I think Kolchak was the number one highest rated TV movie for so long because he was somebody that you felt like could be your next door neighbor. And Roy Thinnis doesn't have that. As far as straight horror goes, I mean, I think this movie, I've seen this movie several times and it never fails to get to me. Now there are moments of Kolchak that are amazing. That camera shot outside, is it the hospital where he's attacking um, all the cop cars and everything? It's all done in like one camera shot or something. It's ridiculous. Now there's no true set piece like that in here, but there's so much buildup. And I think that the zombie slash incredible Hulk slash demon character um, that we'll probably talk about is legit in being terrifying. I really like to see affluency. I'm really into soap operas and stuff. So I connect to it in a different way because I like to see the kind of life that I would like to live. Um, whereas I think a lot of people in the seventies, especially when you think of the TV shows like Chico and the man and all in the family, all those shows were like about the working class. And so I think people related to it on a different way and maybe felt slightly alienated by Kolchak. Now I know Chris doesn't feel that way because he's coming from it fresh, but I think he's tapped into a general feeling that some audience members had watching it. The other main issue that I do have with this is that Roy Thine's character of Norlis is a blank slate. I never get any sense of who he is as a character what he wants as a character other than he's like Kolchak. He's a reporter who's investigating a supernatural incident, but unlike Kolchak, he's a debunker from the get go. But like Mike said, I never get any characterization about him. He's just kind of there. There's one moment where he meets a character and the character recognizes his name. He's like, oh, yeah, yeah, I know David Norlis. You, I read one of your books and stuff. I don't think that necessarily ever would have happened to Kolchak. Or if it had, it would have been like, I wrapped my fish in it this morning. Whereas like Norlis seems like, to your point, Amanda, he seems more affluent and just like, oh, yes. Because he is a successful writer, whereas Kolchak is the struggling schlepping you know investigative reporter whereas it feels like if this didn't necessarily work out for norlis like oh yeah well we found out that it actually isn't this corpse that's come back from the dead and it's this other thing he would just be like okay yeah, i'll write this into a story and i'll sell a million copies and i'll be cool and i'll be able to pay the rent on my you know awesome apartment kind of thing it doesn't feel like the struggle is necessarily there that's right also i think something that's interesting is that he has a very platonic relationship with angie dickinson whereas kolchak is like Getting down and dirty with his leading ladies. So that's a big difference too. And it's really interesting because although I do actually think Darren McGavin's sexy and I'm probably in the minority on that, Ray Thinnis is obviously extremely sexy. So it's kind of funny to see him play a character that isn't like playing the field, nor are women like crawling all over him, even though he's surrounded by beautiful women through the whole film. So it's kind of an interesting trait. I do agree there's not a lot to David Norlis in a lot of ways, but I think that he works at pushing the movie forward and keeping you interested in the story. I do think some of the narration is like over the top. He's like gunmetal gray sky, you know, and it's like he's so dramatic. Okay, David, you're really handsome, but come on, you know what I mean? Like there's points where you're like, you know, you want him to like get a beer and like watch a game or something. 
something. But I still, there's something, I've always been really compelled by Roy Thinnis. I know him from, um, he was one of the original cast members of General Hospital, and he was on One Life to Live, and um, I followed him most of my life. So maybe I'm projecting something into him, but I don't, I'm not necessarily bothered by the fact he is a little bit of a blank slate. He's a little bit of a blank slate because I think he, there's molding that has to be done in the story, and I like the way he sort of molds himself to it. Well, there's literal molding happening here with the... Uh, right, that's right. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Well, let's talk about the plot a little bit more, because at the heart of this is a mystery that Norlis is trying to solve, and it is, it's pretty much, it's Angie Dickinson's mystery. Now, she is a widow who swears that her husband has come back to life, and it's kind of an investigation of the husband and what he was into, and we're uncovering things as far as him making this packed him talking to this um, for lack of a better term voodoo woman who gives him this ring or sells him this ring so that he can have immortality he is so afraid of death he knows that he's dying he wants to live more and in so doing he basically make, makes a pact with the devil or at least a demon and so that he has to work to help bring this demon from the netherworld into his world. And even though he's a corpse, uh, he's still able to do that. And I do have to say that the makeup job on the husband is pretty terrific. I really enjoy just how gruesome he looks with that kind of gunmetal gray countenance and then those yellow eyes those yellow eyes are amazing yeah he's a really creepy character and so there's a scene i guess about midway into the film where david and ellen are confronted by court and um he chases them around the property her house that she's inherited and oh my god he rips the car door off the car as they're driving off of course the car's not going it's not starting and the look on angie dickinson's face through that whole scene is just i every time i watch it i get really caught up in the terror of it and like he just rips off that door and it's so it's it really freaks me out especially the first time i saw it but i think that he's legitimately scary he's massive i think he was actually like a model or a weightlifter before he became an actor it really his size really comes into play and i think it works really well as well as the makeup i agree i think my problem with this <laughs> is not anything about you know the makeup or anything and that and, and a lot of it is really good a lot of it is really derivative of Kolchak in a way that like i had a hard time overlooking in spots because i was like I, you know I, I was watching it to talk about it on this on this podcast but at the same time obviously it's so close to the night stalker in like everything that goes on aside from one or two character beats that it, you know, everything that it did well, I was just like, well, I mean, it did it well because the Night Stalker did it pretty well, too. So it's not hard to really move from one thing to the other and be like, well, they did it well because they did it well. They're they're really not moving outside of a very small box. And, you know, and, you know, and, and ultimately we could be we could have been talking about the, the Norlis tapes as the name of our podcast, as opposed to the Kolchak tapes, if one or two things had gone right for the Norlis tape show or the that as opposed to Kolchak on top of everything else. I mean, it, they're so close to one another in what they're trying to achieve. I agree with that. Uh, I do want to talk a little bit, and I thought about this the other day. I thought that this might actually come up because it does, in a lot of ways, have the same beats. But just myself, some context to people listening. So uh, you've probably learned just from watching these three TV movies that television movies can be really formulaic. 
Um, that's because they probably didn't have a lot of time to work with them the way they might want to if it was a theatrical or if they had the money and the time. So there is definitely a formula. And if you dive into TV movies in general, you'll find that a lot of them follow the same roadmap. Now, I'm also a big fan of slasher films. Basically, slasher films are are completely similar to each other. There's very little. They're, you know, they do different things. But the whole point is, like, what happens inside that roadmap for me I'm not trying to dismiss anything Chris says because I've heard this criticism, and although I disagree with it, I understand it. In the 70s, maybe it wasn't so formulaic. I mean, this is, of course, this is the third time we're seeing it from the same group of people, so maybe it is. But it's kind of a different era for this kind of stuff, even though the roadmap is very clear. What's going on inside of it, and I would say this for all three films, is different enough that it keeps me going. So I, structure is less important to me, I think, maybe than uh, all the familiar faces and uh, the plot, you know, the beats of the characters and getting to like them and whatnot. So I think that's where I'm coming from. I see Chris is coming from a different place. And again, I just want to say I don't want to dismiss it. It's actually interesting to hear it. And I have read criticism that's similar to that. And so I don't I don't agree with his opinion, but I certainly don't think that it's coming out of nowhere. And it's it's always interesting to hear the opposing viewpoints. Well, I mean, I, you know, even if there was a, a quote unquote formula in the 70s, you didn't have to make a, a, a TV movie where it's a journalist investigating supernatural stuff. That's not even a question of formula at this point. It's a question of just like carbon copying with a different actor. Well, That's, I think we also have to look you know at who's I mean? bankrolling this, right? Right. So, Obviously. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, and I'm not asking you to forgive things. I'm just I guess I'm thinking about like when NBC is like saying, yeah, we want this. Well, look how popular this is. Do this. And then, and as you know, Richard Matheson was getting kind of frustrated, I think. And I know Darren McGavin was. And so, you know, they were trying to work with what they had. And I think bringing in William F. Nolan was a way to bring in sort of a fresh voice into something that they probably had been like, we're going to, we're going to green light this if you do this. And so then William F. Nolan had to figure out how to do that with what he had and make it new. That's my guess. I don't obviously know that. And I know you'll talk to William F. Nolan and he may clarify. But I feel like the factory of TV filmmaking sort of left, unfortunately, some filmmakers probably at their wits end to a certain degree trying to figure out how, oh, yeah, oh, well, I'll do this if. Because everything has to hit certain points because they have, they're, um, you know, slaves to the advertisers. So they need to please them. Well, if the Night Stalker proved to be such a success, then if we keep doing it, then, you know, Tide or whoever will keep financing us you know what i mean so i think that that's also an issue with tv movies and might be why some people don't like them as much because they do sometimes follow very very strict formulas after cheers was a hit i'm sure that there was you know a bunch of friends that are running a laundromat or a bunch of friends that are running a restaurant and just these kind of same formulas of you know it's it's that whole uh, square that you get at the different personality types where you have the the ricky the lucy the ethel and the fred and just getting those same things over and over and over again you know looking at like even a seinfeld compared to a coupling i mean there are so many things that can be similar i think probably and i'm not trying to put words in your mouth Chris is just that Dan Curtis being the producer of the Night Stalker, the director of the Night Strangler, and then the director of this one, it felt like he was kind of treading water a little bit, and I completely understand that. But yeah, to your point, Amanda, it's like, okay, this sells, so let's continue to sell it until we can't sell it anymore. Right, but again, like like you mentioned, you know, oh, cheers, and then they're in a laundromat. This, for me... When I look at it, it's just like it does so little to distinguish itself from Kolchak that it almost doesn't distinguish itself enough to to verify its own existence. 
One thing I think that doesn't help is the reuse of certain character actors. Now, Amanda, you were talking about some of these movies became so formulaic, and I think one of the ways that you can utilize shorthand when it comes to telling a story, no matter what, I mean, there are certain actors where you're going to hire them and you're going to, you know, as soon as people see them, it's like, oh, this is a type, you know, this is this character actor. He's always going to play this particular type of character. Well, Sheriff Lobo himself, uh, Claude Aikens, who we saw as another sheriff in the Night Stalker, here he is as another sheriff in the Norlis tapes, kind of playing the same character, really trying to keep the lid on this one particular murder that happens. And then it doesn't help, too, that he's interviewing Stanley Adams, who we saw being interviewed by another sheriff or another policeman in the Night Stalker. So it's like just those use of the character actors from one to another. It's like, oh, I know this guy. Oh, yeah, he was pretty playing pretty much the same thing. He was the guy who was the used car salesman who uh, sold the car to the the, the vampire, to, to Scorsini in The Night Stalker. And here he is as this truck driver. And it's kind of the same thing. He's just like this little exposition machine. Sheriff, I suppose the one to talk to me about it. No. All right. Come here, I want to talk to you over here. Gene, Mike, get these spectators out of here. Come here. Is that where you found her? Yeah, but I ain't seen nobody ever look like that after no car crash, Sheriff. She was like Never something. mind what she was. You just keep shut on that part of it. Anybody ask you, you just found her dead in the car. Sheriff, nobody looked like that after... I just got through telling you, I don't want any more talk about this at all. Now, is that clear? Yeah, it's clear, but let me ask you something. How am I going to forget the color of that face? Help him get on his way, will you, Charlie? All right, now, how'd you find out about this, Kolchak? Well, a fine little bird told me about it. Don't now, you stop just my account. keep your mouth shut. Yes, sir. Okay. Well, uh, like I said, he just stands there looking at me. Then he tells me the price is too high. $300 too high. And he keeps staring at me. He's daring me to tell him the price is $1,200. Is this fellow... Now, stop doing our job for us, Kolchak. That's already been established. Yes. Yeah, well, you see, uh, I told him only he had a mustache. Mustache? Did you sell him the car? Well, I started to say no. But something inside tells me, ah, don't mess with this guy. I mean, he's a creep. With them red eyes and that voice, he's enough to keep a guy from working nights. So it's very similar in the way that this is. And it also is, in both instances, I get the feeling of Kolchak going out. I mean, Kolchak actually talks to the used car salesman. He kind of interrupts the uh, investigation at this point. But there are some instances in both the Night Stalker and the Night Strangler where Kolchak isn't there and things happen. But I always get the feeling that he has chased down these sources and it's basically kind of replaying his notes, his articles, what we're seeing happen. Whereas with Norlis, those moments when we're not with Norlis, when it is the sheriff talking to the tow truck driver, I don't necessarily get the feeling that he went out and did that investigation. It's like we're kind of taking a break from the narrated Norlis story and we're moving into, I don't want to say supposition, but what really happened, but Norlis isn't necessarily with us. And he doesn't necessarily have a strong enough voice to me for me to realize, oh, he probably, this is going to be like something that he wrote, or there's that conceit of his editor sitting in his apartment listening to these tapes, as opposed to the conceit of Carl kind of keeping these notes 
for his own book and that he'll fill in the details as we go along, or he'll send the tapes to Jeff Rice and Jeff Rice will fill in the blanks for the, the Kolchak books. So I'm not saying that that's necessarily a bad thing. It's just kind of a, a difference when it comes to the way that these stories are actually being laid out. The other thing I did want to touch on really quickly is the way that the Norlis tapes is made. I noticed that there were a lot of, and Amanda, you mentioned how cheap that these films could be. And I think the cheapest thing in the world to do is to shoot basically B-roll of cars and then dub over dialogue. And there was so much of that in the Norlis tapes. It was just like, how many conversations are Norlis and Angie Dickinson going to have while they're driving along? Because it felt like a lot. Yeah, there is a lot of uh, narration. That's not necessarily my favorite thing, but something I'd like to comment about a couple things so for the reuse of actors there's two points i want to bring up so i think dan curtis really liked to use uh his group of stock players i guess you want to call them and he liked to work with them now i agree you could move them around a little and give them sort of different roles but he he liked to work with certain people and obviously claude akins has a very authoritative feel to him and so he always he always seems like the sheriff to me whatever even if he's not so and i think he even played the sheriff in shadow of fear which is another dan curtis production that aired on the abc wild world mystery which it was shot on video, aired late at night, but I feel like he plays a cop in that as well. But I will say that, and I'm going to keep going back to context because I know not everybody watches things with the history of the film in mind, but I think it's important to remember that you would have, well, of course, you would have seen The Night Strangler the month before, but you wouldn't have seen Claude Aikens for over a year because um, it aired, I don't know, whatever, one or two years before the Norlis tapes, The Night Stalker did. So you're actually looking at a story, and then you've got some time passing before you actually encounter Claude Akins again. We didn't have VCRs or the ability to rewatch a lot of things unless our local programmer picked it up for syndication in reruns or in the afternoon movie or whatever. So so I get that it's easy now to say, well, he played this and that, and he just did this, but there was a big enough time span that, I mean, the only people who probably would have caught on it would have been really fervent like fans back in the day. And I know it's harder to watch it this way because we could binge watch all the Kolchak, everything, and the end, the Norlis tapes, and pretty much anything else that has to do with Darren McGavin and compare them now, but we didn't have that ability back then. Um, just to point that out. And also to get to the narrative, what I like so much about the narrative is I, I do think it's a hiccup that like when Ellen's sister gets killed, that we have no idea how Court showed up at the hotel. We don't know that he was lurking outside the window and like watching her get undressed and all that and the way he did what he did to her. So there's a thing, you know, the unreliable narrator. And I think Ray Thinnis is positioning himself as that. Because he is the debunker, but he's also filling in these like very like, this is what happened here, making it feel almost realistic. And so so if you want to add some characterization to, to Norlis, I feel like he's actually struggling with our world and the other world in his own narration. And that's because he's experienced something that we're not quite aware of what he's experienced. So we're learning along with him, but he's filling in these moments that we have no idea if they really happen that way. And by positioning himself as the unreliable narrator, it's still possible that this is not the true story. So I think that to me, that adds a layer of interest and fascination to the character because what is really happening, I mean, Norlis is gone and we don't know why. And I think, what is the last sentence in the film? He says, Sargoth, strange name. And I feel like there's a connection there. So we're still walking this line, is Sargoth something actually from this ancient whatever and it's happening now or has he just become so obsessed with this case that now Sargoth has become something in his mind? 
Yeah, it's not very fair that we are comparing these things month to month. It's kind of interesting because next month when Chris and I start talking about the Kolchak TV show, we're actually giving the Kolchak TV show more breathing room than it actually had when it originally aired. I mean, we're doing month to month, whereas the TV show was week to week. So not necessarily a year between the two. I mean, like the, the Night Stalker, the Night Strangler, or the Night Stalker and the Norlis tapes, but we're giving it a little bit more breathing room from one to the next. And I'm not planning on going back and gorging on all of the the shows and then coming back to the first one again, I'm actually going to sit there and watch one show a month and then go from there. Cause I've seen them all already and I want, I binged them the first time. So I'm going to now, you know, sip them instead of guzzle. So I understand where you're coming from as far as the context. Cause we talked a little bit about that uh, last month when we talked about the night strangler and the night stalker and just that they were kind of similar. And yeah, there was a year between it and it wasn't like it was being rerun and it wasn't like I could go over to the video store and pick up the VHS tape or tune into Netflix. Netflix and have it streamed down to my house. So I can totally see where you're coming from when it comes to just that breathing room between the two and having, you know, Claude Aikens give me, you know, a little bit of reprieve there. It's funny looking at his filmography, how many army men he played. He's got Sergeant in front of his character name, a bunch. To your point, he's got a bunch of uh, police characters under his belt as well. It's interesting because I tend to associate him the most with the role that he played in Rio Bravo, where he was a shitheel as opposed to being a sheriff. But then, of course, I grew up with BJ and the Bear, so he was the sheriff for me for so many years. And then even his own television show, he was so popular on BJ and the Bear, he spun off to his own thing. And then, of course, I always remember him as uh, having problems with his dentures and uh, having that seed get between his uh, his gums and his dentures. Hey, if you wear dentures, I'll bet you know the pain of getting food stuck between your dentures and gums. Like these darn seeds. Ouch! I forgot about that. Oh my gosh, that's a flashback. And that's saying something since I live in the 70s. He was on Murder, She Wrote, and he, played, he was only in the first season, and he actually got let go. I don't think he got along with Angela Lansbury, and she brought in, um, oh my god, William Wyndham. And uh, he plays kind of a dumbish character, and it's interesting to see him. He's real sweet. He's always in a sweatshirt. I, I can't remember what he does for a living. And I think he sort of helps Jessica with his cases because he's got this not completely, but slightly Chrissy Snow sense of logic. So, so I think sometimes he says things sort of in bewilderment, and it sort of helps her make connections in her mind. I'm used to him as, like, the cop. And uh, I always love watching Claude Aikens. I don't really care what he's doing. He looks a lot like my father did uh, when my father didn't have a mustache. When my father had a mustache, he looked like Charles Bronson. So he was able to morph himself into all these men that I adore. So I don't necessarily have a problem with it. But I do get Dan Curtis has stock players, and it's kind of nice if you can switch them around a little. And uh, they didn't. So I, I kind of, I mean, I can't disagree with that. There are faces that I like to look at all the time. And I really like Don Porter. And if anybody ever goes on my Facebook, they know me well enough to know that I love Robert Mandan. So even if he shows up for one or two scenes, I am happy. I am a happy camper. Um, he's one of my all-time favorite actors. So it was really great to see these really wonderful faces. And that's something about the TV movie, too, that I think if you didn't grow up in the 70s, you don't necessarily understand the comfort factor of these films that feeds into some of the appreciation of them as well yeah robert mandan is fantastic and as i was watching him i was just like oh my god he is so familiar and i'm trying to remember it wasn't benson was he on he was on soap he played chester 
And he, yeah, the, the, you know, philandering husband. And he was also on one of my all time favorite shows, which is three's a crowd, you know, the, the spinoff from three's company and the pairing of him with John Ritter is sublime. And I know it's blasphemous to say it, but I actually prefer three's a crowd. It only ran one season, but I, I actually watch it more than I watch three's company. But anyway, he's a really great face and he doesn't do a lot of drama. And when he does, he shows up in character parts on like, you know, TV shows like uh, street San Francisco. He's in a scene in the pilot and he shows up in things like that. So it's always a pleasure to see him um, in something that's not like a straight up comedy. I don't think it's blasphemous at all for you to like three's a crowd more than three's company, because personally I think, Three's company is garbage, so <laughs> I tend to use that as like the lowest bar when it's like, oh, there's a misunderstanding. Like Three's company. Oh, is Jack gay? No, he's not. But everyone thinks he is. Ha ha. ha. Omg, that's one of my favorite. Shows. I didn't know anybody really liked that show. Yeah, we're actually. I do a podcast called Podcast Mania, which is a horror podcast. But the guy who runs it loves Three's company, so we started a spinoff of. It, and we're going to do every episode. And we've already done the first three pilots. Um, yeah, I know. There's already somebody that's on the panel, I guess you want to call us, roundtable. And they're, they've never really seen Three's Company. I don't think they're that happy with it. But I love it. So to say I love Three's a crowd, I must really love it. That, to me, was absolute dreck. I couldn't even watch that when I was a kid. And I would watch pretty much everything. Oh, I don't even know why I'm talking to you people. So let's talk about Vanetta McGee. I was so happy to see Vanetta McGee show up as, uh, what was her name, Madeline? Jaquiel, I think. Jaquiel, thank you. Yeah. She was great. I wish she had been in the show a little bit more, especially because she's another character that gets talked about for a while until we finally meet her. And then she's kind of hesitant to really tell us the truth, but then finally comes out and tells us exactly what is going on. So um, I really, I like her so much. I love Vanetta McGee whenever she shows up in anything. So that's she's one of my favorite character actors in this. Yeah, she's wonderful, and she has such a sense of style in it, the, the red braids and the red shawl, and um, she's a very colorful character in it, and I think you're right, she's a wonderful actress, and she's sort of the linchpin in a way, I mean, she has the answers, but she won't give them in time, you know what I mean, uh, unfortunately for her own uh, life. It turns out I think she's perfectly like interlaced throughout the film to sort of build up the tension about the house of Sargoth and who Sargoth the demon might be. And so I think she's to me, she's like perfectly played. I agree. You can never get too much Vanetta, but I think the character of Madame Jaquille is sort of perfectly sprinkled into the film for me. And I like I know it, it looks kind of cheesy in, in this day and age, but I really like the makeup on Sargoth and the way that he turns from statue into person. What? That was kind of freaky to me. What? You weren't a fan of Sargoth? Oh, Mike. I mean, remember my conversation last episode about the, uh, the makeup on the killer in the Night Strangler, and this is just... He looked like the Hulk as a turd. He totally looked like the Hulk. As a turd. I love like the way. Like brown Hulk. I thought he looked awesome. I mean, you and can't really seems- tell what he looks like when he's behind the fire the entire time. So You get a good shot of him. You know, I am the, the, the different opinion when it comes to the Norlis tapes, but the, the look of the character at the end, after he becomes the, from the statue to alive, just, it, it made me laugh out loud. I was like, wow, this is... I, I think the humorous moment in that is when they get to the guest house and they're putting around whatever, they're putting a, a circle around um, Sargoth's statue because they're trying to capture Court in this with the special potion that Norlis has made. And he comes in, Court, 
And the statue was like 99.9% done, but for some reason he had to stop for like eight hours, I guess, because the sun came up. And then he comes in and he just sort of rubs where the eyes are, and then he's done. It takes 30 seconds. And you're like, wow, you couldn't have done that yesterday? And then this would have all been taken care of. So it's really funny when he comes in and it's like, it's like, oh, yeah, I just forgot to add this eyebrow. And then there he is. But I think he's really creepy because he's so big. And Court's already big, so to size those two up together is really interesting. And I like the makeup. It reminds me a little bit of, I don't know if either one of you are familiar with a TV movie called Scream Pretty Peggy with Ted Bessel, but he's an artist. And I don't want to give too much away about the film, but he has these very large, creepy statues and that are very important to the film. I like this weird, like, demonic art theme that was happening in the 70s in TV movies. Uh, the Supernatural was huge in TV movies. And I, I like the idea of it coming to life, and I do like the effects. They don't bother me at all. I think that they're really neat. I prefer, like, simple, because then your mind sort of fills in things for it. Yeah, I really liked him. I thought that he still looked semi-clay when he came to life, and that was what was so interesting about him, like, his, the way his nose was formed. You could still see, still see the molding. And so he, what do you want to call that, metamorphosis into becoming a living creature is actually really interesting because you can still see where he was an inanimate object. And I think that adds into, like, the weirdness of it. Um, yeah, I really like him. If you look up the guy who played Sargoth, who's uh, Bob Schott, he is just, he's a monster. This was actually listed as one of his first roles. I wouldn't be surprised if he had come in from maybe the bodybuilding world, the football world, something like that. I would need to look up his background, but he is just huge to look at him. He is so pumped up. It looks like he could give Arnold Schwarzenegger a run for his money. Uh, well, yeah, when you compare him, and Court's big, so yeah, they, like, and he towers over that guy, so, I mean, he's just, just, this, just the size, the immensity of him is terrifying. And it's funny, because he was in Jim Cotta, which I just was talking about so much on the uh, Never Too Young to Die episode oh, of the Projection Booth. Awesome. Yeah, Jim Cotta's pretty fun. The thing that cracked me up about the end of the film was the way that they have to capture uh, Sargoth in court in the blood circle. And I, I don't know whose blood this was, if this was Otis the Drunks or what, but just that it lights on fire so quickly. <laughs> it's <laughs> like, wow, okay. <laughs> That's right, it's 99 proof, I heard. Yeah, wow, it really lit up. And, it, of course, it reminded me of Supernatural with all the, like, what, salt circles and stuff. They were always capturing, always capturing them. When I saw that, I was like, oh, yeah, this is... And we're straight out of Supernatural, except in Supernatural, the the villain always manages to, you know, notice it on the ground or they have like a rug over it. And this court just like walks on it. He doesn't even care. He's just, you know, whatever. Sure. Well, it's tough to see with those gold eyes of his. Yeah, right. And I do like when he's there kind of like worshiping Sargoth and, and he, you know, he's, he's dead. He can't really speak very well. So he's just making all these unintelligible noises. I was like, that's kind of cool. That sounded painful to me. Uh, there's also another TV movie. I get it mixed up. They're actually pilot episodes so they're only an hour it's the world beyond i think is the one i'm thinking of because there's two of them world of darkness maybe and world of beyond and with granville van dusen and they create this mud monster. somebody creates a mud monster and the monster has no soul and he's running around you know this like a wooded beautiful wooded area and he's attacking these people in this cabin and he cries to the whole episode and it sounds so painful and i don't think court is quite there but when he's making those sort of guttural noises it sounds like there's just so much pain inside him 
And so I don't think he's a tragic character, although I guess he kind of is. So to give some background on Court, you know, he was dying and he was really upset about it, as you would be. And he was also dying from a brain disorder, like he had some kind of disease that was affecting his brain. And so he was looking for a way to find life after death. He was confined to a wheelchair uh, right before he died. And so he was obsessed with escaping the body he was in because it was betraying him, but yet still being able to go on, which is why I think at the end, you know, when Madame Jaquille gets attacked and Angie Dickinson's able to run out of the mausoleum area, she says, I don't know why he didn't attack me, but I think, I actually think Court loves her. And so he didn't necessarily want to hurt her. He'd kill the dog. He'll kill people that come to the mausoleum that she may know. He'll kill Norlis if he can, but he's not going to kill her, I feel. Uh, That's never necessarily given to the audience, but that's just my understanding of it. And so when I hear him crying, uh, you know, it it gets to me to a point. I am going to change what I said. I do think he's kind of a tragic character. And so I like that he he makes those noises. I think it just kind of adds to... It gives him a little personality and some backup to how tragic the end of his life was. Speaking of character actors, there's a couple things I want to bring up about this scene. Norlis goes to an art gallery, and I want to know why George DiCenzo only has, like, two lines in that scene. Because, you know, he's a very famous character actor, and he went on to be in Helter Skelter, right? Starring it. And here he is with two lines. And so he introduces uh, Norlis to, um, oh my gosh, I can't remember the name of the art dealer. But they're talking, and he's asking um, the art dealer about the ring that Vanetta McGee had given to court. It seems like Norlis is setting up the art dealer to go to the mausoleum to try to retrieve the ring because he wants it really bad. And so he says, oh, you know, it's still on his finger and he got buried with it. And you're like, oh, this is going to be such a setup. So the art dealer goes to the mausoleum, but Norlis isn't there. Matter of fact, the art dealer isn't even found till the end of the film. And that's a perplexing moment for me because it feels like such a setup when you're watching it unfold. That that Norlis is like at the hotel with Angie Dickinson at that time when he should be in the mausoleum waiting for the art dealer is like a really strange sort of hiccup for me in the film. To your earlier point, I am glad that Norlis doesn't get it on with Angie Dickinson. I mean, of course, Angie Dickinson is absolutely gorgeous and she's terrific in this movie. But I'm so glad that they don't have a romance just because there is that tragic figure of her dead husband who is now back. I mean, that would just be way strange if she suddenly fell into bed with Norlis because her dead husband is still wandering around and she is, I would say, pretty freshly a widow. It doesn't seem like a lot of time has passed between when her husband died and when he's back and and terrorizing people. So I'm glad that she is still kind of in mourning and that she doesn't pick up uh, Norlis and, you know, have this great romance with him. That would have been the easy way to go and I can see other characters doing that in in other movies, but I'm really glad that there was that restraint and that they're more working together than sleeping together. Yeah, I think it makes it a little less predictable, too, because it seems like two people that beautiful should be having, like, 3,000 babies, so it's really nice that they don't. And you're right. I mean, I think that maybe there's... I guess if, I mean, I've seen Norlis tape a hundred times, but I guess if I watch it through the lens of like a romance between Court and Ellen, I think that there are clues given throughout the film about her feelings about losing him. Um, it's very slight, but I think it's there. But it's also interesting because Court, so her sister, um, who becomes one of uh, Court's victims, does not like him. And so they're trying to give him layers to his character. I don't know how successful it is in the end. You can tell that they're trying to make Court a person and a monster, I think, through the proceedings. So you're right. It's kind of nice that they 
they've thought about how would the wife really react so soon after the death of her husband with another man, you know? And so I think that was the right way to go too. Plus, I mean, to be fair, it's, I personally never got any chemistry between the two of them anyways. Like yeah. they, they never really had any chemistry. So if they had gone the romantic route, I mean, it would have made, it would have made very little sense. Well, there are so many romances in movies that just don't make any sense. You have a man and a woman on screen together. You don't have to hang a lantern on it like that, Mike. Come on. Don't give them a, <laughs> don't give them an easy out like that. I, I'm just saying that so much of movies are about coupling, you know, just right. who's going to be with the other person by the end of the film you know that the when they roll those credits is there going to be a single wedding a double wedding a triple wedding look out it could be wacky well it also like speaks to uh what i said earlier about the fact that Darren mcgavin like gets it on with everybody and yeah. he, and i get it like, he's such a charming character and i i don't have a problem with it but it's kind of nice to see that it doesn't have to necessarily be that way in these films and i i agree i don't chemistry is a tough thing because they're so professional with each other to a certain level because he's he's there to debunk her story i mean he goes in essentially like oh my god something's wrong with her story and then he comes to realize oh my god maybe not so he's coming in not as somebody interested in necessarily taking care of her. So they're approaching each other from different angles, I think, than Kolchak does with his love interest. So let's talk about the end of the Norlis tapes. I mean, we are so, to me anyway, set up for a sequel or a series. They end it on, like, and tape two. Like, they end it on that, so... Well, it's hilarious because he turns it over and they're like, chapter two, and I'm like, that was chapter one? That's like a book! <laughs> That's a lot for the first chapter. Yeah, yeah. Really break it up a little bit, would you? And I think some of that was a run-on sentence. They really need to get a, get a good editor in there. That's what Don Porter was. He just edits it. He doesn't even look for him. He's like, I have so much editing to do. While the tape's playing, he's like looking through the yellow pages for a transcription service and stuff. To talk about it being um, a pilot, this was a pilot, and it was part of a huge pickup from the network. Uh, I think that there were 14 other pilot movies that they aired that season, and I, the only one other one I remember now was a movie called Firehouse that I think Vince Edwards might have been in. And I've seen it. It's just been well over a decade since I've seen it. They were looking to uh, spin it off. And according to William F. Nolan, and he may confirm it in the um, interview, but I believe he said that the, he had actually written a sequel to it called The Return, where Norlis actually travels through time and encounters his child, uh, his own, his, his boyhood self. And the sequel, I guess it's kind of a prequel, but I th I'm not quite sure. It did fairly well in the ratings. Uh, it got a 19.5 share. It's hard for me to understand how to read ratings, but I think it, it aired in 30 million homes. And if you're talking about families, entire families watching this, so we're like 40, 50 million people watched it. It actually came in number 54 for the 73, 74 TV movie season, but that's out of 165 TV movies that aired that year. That's also counting reruns. Um, so it actually ranked fairly well. It was in the top third. I know Variety and The Hollywood Reporter both really liked it. It got some really good buzz. But for whatever reason, the network ended up passing on it. Obviously, they passed on Firehouse as well. I don't know why, but they decided in the end that it wasn't viable for a TV series. I don't know if I would have watched a Norlis show just because there wasn't that chemistry, just because Norlis was kind of a blank slate. But maybe had he gone on for a little bit more, I would have learned a little bit more about his character. It's funny because there are so many characters where it's just like, 
you look at the trappings of the character, like Columbo is one of my most favorite television characters of all times. And you could say, well, he's just a series of cliches with the, uh, the trench coat and the way that he rubs his head and the cigar and the dog and all these kind of things. Does the coat make the man or does the man make the coat kind of thing? And I, I think that all that stuff plays together really well. Same thing with, with uh, 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 Kolchak. I mean, we see him in that same outfit so much. We talked about on the very first episode how the characters kind of reflect him holding out and thinking that he's going to be back in the big league, back in New York City, and, and making it as a you know big-time reporter. Norlis just, yeah, he seems very blank to me, so it doesn't feel like he's got... He doesn't have he doesn't have a thing to grab onto. It's not like he's wearing a, a funny tie or that he has a particular phrase or anything like that. It just feels like he's very much a plain person, and I never get that grasp on him, which is a shame because I do like Roy Thines as an actor, but in this one it just feels like he's just not a hundred percent there for me. Well, he does have a catchphrase. It's gunmetal gray sky. You think that would have been the way that he opened up the second one? <laughs> I think so. I, You know, I, I can't disagree with that. And I think even to some degree, the filmmakers felt maybe he was a little aloof. And I've heard that time and time again. But like I said, I really like Ruth Ennis. I think, I think he's fine in the part. I, I kind of am intrigued by him because he, he's really like... I mean, he's so serious and he's so intent on debunking these things. But at the same time, there's something inside him that's really open to it. And I think the actor, not the actor, the character is struggling with something within himself. Now, whether or not they got that across to everybody, it seems like they didn't. But I feel like I feel like maybe had the series been picked up and been able to continue I think we would have seen a real it would be like Mulder later on when Mulder and Scully's kind of started to change um, viewpoints on the world and Scully be, started to be more open to things and I think Mulder started to feel really alien and no pun intended alienated from his beliefs and I think maybe we would have seen that in Norlis and that would have been really intriguing you know and I think it would have been really intriguing for the audience because, as I said earlier, the 70s was really caught up in the supernatural. And, uh, you know, there was, there's a piece of that that people want to believe, and then there's a piece of it that tells them that it can't be possible. And I think Norlis could have been relatable in that way had maybe he been fine-tuned a little better. If it's between Kolchak and Norlis and only one of them can exist while the other one has to go the way of the dodo, I mean, pretty obvious which one, for me at least, has to stick around because, but you know, like I said before, if one or two things had been different for Nor- for Norlis, Norlis would be what we're talking about now. And we'd be talking about those two one-offs, Kolchak, but the Norlis tapes. So Right, we would have said that those were the trial runs for Norlis. Right. And that they had this character and he was just way too jokey and that we really wanted a more serious person in there who was taking these monsters seriously rather than it just being a big joke. We would have denigrated Kolchak in favor of Norlis, and, but obviously the name of the podcast is the Kolchak tape, so poor Norlis has to suffer. Yeah, but I agree with that, too. I mean, as much as I like the Norlis tapes, and it is my favorite of the three, I think Kolchak has the longevity to, you know, of that character. Because you're right, I think Columbo's a very good comparison. They're just both so ridiculously charming. 
And they are really fleshed out in intriguing ways because we really don't know that much about Kolchak outside of like his investigations, but you feel like you know him. Whereas Columbo, he has this what might be a fictional family. I mean, there's lots of debate about whether or not he has all those cousins and whatever, but you get to feel like you know these people, like they're right down the street from you at the local bar and you're just going to go down there and there they're going to be. And obviously David Norlis didn't have that, but you know. A girl can dream, is what I'm saying. It's a shame because Norlis didn't even have his editor to bounce stuff off of. I mean, Columbo had Bert for a little while. Columbo had Dog. Columbo had other people that he could speak to. And yeah, you could make up the fictional family. And Kolchak had Vincenzo. But poor Norlis doesn't necessarily have that in the way that there's that disconnect between his tapes and his editor and that they're a buffer as opposed to the way that Vincenzo is the guy who's kind of keeping Kolchak in check. He is kind of the, the Scully to his Mulder, even though he's, he's much uh, less of a role than Scully was. Yeah, definitely. All right. We're going to take a break and we're going to play a pair of interviews. The first is with Jeff Thompson, the author of the television horrors of Dan Curtis Dark Shadows, The Night Stalker, and other productions, 1966 to 2006. Now, uh, Amanda, I thought your title was long, but that one kind of, uh, <laughs> is running a close second. The second is with William F. Nolan, who is the author of both the Norlis tapes and the unmade third Kolchak film, The Night Killers. And we'll be back with those right after these brief messages. <laughs> You have written for so many different outlets and about so many different subjects. I'm curious, you are, how would you put it? Are you more of a scholar first and writer second or vice versa? Oh, I guess I have always been a writer uh, going back to when I was a little kid. And then the scholar part came through the years as I got my degrees and uh, expanded my education and my reading. Um, yes, I have enjoyed writing about movies, TV, music, comic books for many different magazines, websites, uh, books, uh, multi-author books, and then my own three books about producer-director Dan Curtis. And your writing goes all the way back to the days of fanzines, correct? Yes. Um, in the 1970s, when I was a teenager, I wrote for the Heroines Showcase, uh, a, a fanzine all about comic book heroines and a few other uh, comic book fanzines. And then I wrote for the World of Dark Shadows and uh, about a dozen other Dark Shadows fanzines in the 70s and especially the 80s and into the early 90s. What got you interested in Dan Curtis? Well, I have always uh, loved Dark Shadows. I started watching it uh, when I was seven years old. I didn't see the first year. I started watching after Barnabas Collins, the vampire, had already come into the story, but I later rewatched. I later watched the uh, earlier episodes on VHS and DVD. Um, so I watched Dark Shadows every single day, and I am one of the generation who can say, and I even had a bumper sticker that said this, I ran home from school to watch Dark Shadows. And because I was watching the show, I then sought out uh, the 
uh, paperback gothic novels based on the show written by Dan Ross, the Canadian author who wrote as Marilyn Ross and Clarissa Ross. I later got to meet him and his wife, and I wrote my master's thesis about some of his historical novels. And I started reading the Dark Shadows comic book uh, published by Gold Key Comics and um, collecting all of the memorabilia, the uh, other magazines and books, records, Viewmaster, puzzles, games, magic slate, masks, gum cards, uh, everything about Dark Shadows. And one of the bedrooms in my house is a Dark Shadows room where I have all of that on display. Now, obviously, something that has that much cultural ephemera associated with it is kind of shows the impact that it had upon popular culture. But for some of my possibly younger listeners, can you kind of explain what kind of cultural phenomenon Dark Shadows was when it was originally airing? Yes, Dark Shadows was a daytime serial that ran on ABC every weekday from the late 1960s to the early 70s. And it was like a soap opera in that the story continued every day. It was shot on videotape uh, out of New York City. But the subject matter, uh, which began as a sort of like a gothic novel uh, tinged with some mystery and suspense, soon uh, veered into the supernatural with ghosts and a phoenix fire creature and then the introduction of the vampire Barnabas Collins. And later, uh, the show was, um, uh, you know, overtly supernatural in all of its storylines about vampires, werewolves, ghosts, um, zombies, Frankenstein-like creations, and uh, time travel. So I, uh, I was a huge fan of Dark Shadows and started noticing the names of the people in the credits every day at the end of the show, the actors, and, and certainly Robert Cobert, who composed the great music, and the writers, and, of course, uh, Dan Curtis, uh, the um, uh, creator and executive producer of the show. And so I, I watched for uh, other um, instances where I might find some of Dan Curtis's work, and he, uh, after Dark Shadows ended in 1971, then he began showing up in prime time with blockbuster movies like The Night Stalker and The Night Strangler and uh, a great theatrical movie, Burnt Offerings, and many other um, horror movies, mysteries, crime dramas, family dramas, love stories, westerns. And finally, his two great World War II miniseries on ABC, The Winds of War and War and Remembrance in the 1980s. Now, Dan Curtis, born in, what, 1927, so he would have yeah. been just shy of 40 when Dark Shadows came on. What was he doing before that? He uh, produced golf shows. He uh, produced a long-running golf show for um, um, CBS. Uh, which ran from 1963 to 73. So he was essentially still had his hand in producing golf shows while Dark Shadows was on the air. And he was very successful uh, with um, the um, the golf shows, even winning an Emmy. But he, he wanted to get into dramatic television, and he had some ideas for some nighttime shows. But then he had a dream 
in which he uh, dreamed that a, a young woman was riding a train to uh, a, a small town by the ocean, and she is there to become the governess uh, to a child and a mysterious family in a huge old house. And so his the idea for Dark Shadows came to him in a dream. So he was talking with the executives at ABC and pitched that idea to them. They uh, very briefly uh, thought of maybe having it as a nighttime show, but then they decided to have it as a daytime drama, which was quite unusual. But ABC at that time was uh, more of an innovator. It was in the third place network, so it had to come up with new and outlandish uh, shows to capture attentions and, and gather affiliates all over the country. So, as I said, when Dark Shadows began, it was not overtly supernatural. There were hints of mysteries and lock room, locked rooms and and uh, tall tales about ghosts and things. But then all of that became much more concrete and and obvious until finally it took over the show. It started as a soap opera with some gothic uh, hints to it, but then ended up as a, a supernatural saga that continued from day to day while everyone else was watching the conventional soap operas and then Dark Shadows as well. And those first 10 months or so were very low rated and the show was almost going to go off the air. It it was intriguing. The, those episodes are good, but somewhat slow moving as was the case with soap operas of the 1960s. And so uh, uh, Dan Curtis was afraid that the show was going to go off the air, and so it was his uh, young daughters. He had three daughters. Two daughters are still alive. And his three young daughters at the time told him, make it scarier. So from his daughters, that gave him the idea, well, what, what, is the, what is the thing that scares me most, he thought. And so he realized, well, it's a vampire, because he was a, a fan of all of the universal monster movies, Dracula, Frankenstein, and sort of recreated many of those uh, uh, in his show. So he, he added the vampire and thought that uh, Barnabas Collins would be a disposable monster that would be on the show for about three months and would uh, be a rampaging menace and would, would attack the different characters. But finally, then, someone would drive a stake through his heart and the show would go on to some other uh, idea or concept. But uh, the character of Barnabas Collins, portrayed by the Canadian Shakespearean actor Jonathan Frid, uh, uh, caught on to the point where even though Barnabas was doing very bad things in the story, attacking and kidnapping women, um, he started getting fan mail uh, from women and men uh, and t college students, teenagers, and little kids. The audience of Dark Shadows was, was more than uh, more varied than for a, a conventional soap opera. Uh, he started getting fan letters. Uh, and people started raving about this character. We love Barnabas, and we feel sorry for him. And that was due uh, mostly to Jonathan Frid's great portrayal. He he didn't play the part like a monster, uh, but he uh, in interviews Jonathan Frid said that he he played the part like an alcoholic or like a guy with a hangup. He 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 didn't like the fact that he went out and bit people. He he was 
uh, he was remorseful, and, and he became known as the reluctant vampire. And that idea, of course, has been used in many movies and TV shows about vampires uh, in the, interven- in the uh, uh, subsequent decades. And how did he manage to do the two Dark Shadows films, especially because the first one was happening while the show was yes. still on, correct? Right, yes. Uh, House of Dark Shadows uh, came out in uh, the fall of 1970, and the show was going on all through the year 1970, but they uh, filmed it in April um, of, of 1970 at Lyndhurst, an historic home on the banks of the Hudson River in Tarrytown, New York. And so, um, uh, essentially, the, the cast uh, shuttled back and forth from the TV studio to the movie set, and um, while some of the actors, like Jonathan Frid as Barnabas Collins and Grayson Hall as Dr. Julia Hoffman, were at Lyndhurst making the movie, their characters were written off the show temporarily, and other actors, like David Selby, who played Quentin, and Laura Parker, who played Angelique, neither of whom was in that first movie, were, became the, the daily stars of the show. The show at that time was doing a story set in parallel time, an alternate universe, where the same actors were playing uh, characters similar to their previous parts, but different. Parallel time was uh, was explained as a, a world in which people have made different choices, and therefore their lives went in other directions, and they became uh, richer or poorer or uh, a different occupation or whatever than the their counterparts in quote our world so um and during that time jonathan frid uh as barnabas collins was explained away because a character trapped him inside a chained coffin and so there was uh, a month or so when we did not see barnabas on the show and that's when he was uh, up in Terrytown at Lyndhurst filming House of Dark Shadows. And um, so if the actors were not on the show, that means they were making the movie, or if they were, uh, if they were on, uh, on the show, that means that somebody else was up there making scenes for the movie at the, on that day. Here's kind of a nerdy question. I know in recent years we've had things like the Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and then a Captain America Winter Soldier would come out and the the things that were happening in the movie would affect what's happening in the television show. Was there kind of that play between the House of Dark Shadows and the Dark Shadows TV series? No, not at all. Um uh, we fans sort of uh, explain that as being this is another example of a parallel universe uh, because, for one thing, the the sets were totally different. Uh, the The movie did not use sets per se; it used the actual rooms inside Lyndhurst and the exterior, uh, and so the the movie immediately looked different from the show because all of the sets of the Collinwood Mansion and the Mausoleum and the characters' rooms were all just sets, three-sided, three-walled sets on a, uh, the soundstage in New York City. Uh, and the exterior of Collinwood was Seabue Terrace, uh, an actual mansion in Newport, Rhode Island. So, obviously, the, the movie looked totally different, and it was telling a, a different story. It was based on the 1967 storyline of 
the introduction of Barnabas Collins, he was freed from a chained coffin, and that's how he, the, uh, the, this vampire who had uh, lived in the late 1700s, was able to come into our world of the 1960s and 70s. The the story, the movie was a a retelling of the 1967 storyline in which Barnabas Collins came out of the chained coffin into our present day world, but. Uh, it ended in a different way because many of the characters ended up being killed at the end of the movie, people who were still on the show playing their characters. And um, the character of Barnabas Collins was was much more vicious and evil. He, uh, he was more like the way Dan Curtis had envisioned Barnabas from the beginning. Curtis said that he, he planned for Barnabas to be, in his words, a marauder, uh, uh, just a a villain who would come in and 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 cause mayhem, and then finally a stake would be driven through his heart, and that would be it. But because of the fan reaction to the character and Jonathan's Fred's portrayal and everything, that plan changed. But in the movie, uh, Barnabas is is much uh, uh, more vicious, cruel, evil, and he, he meets a fate at the end of the movie that he, he did not in the TV show. So if you have never watched an episode of Dark Shadows, you can still see House of Dark Shadows and get everything. You, you'll you know what's going on because it tells a, a, a complete story from beginning to end. And the second movie, which came out in the fall of 1971, um, Night of Dark Shadows, is more or less a continuation of the universe of the first movie, although none of the characters uh, carry over. A few of the actors do, but they're playing different parts. And Jonathan Frid, as Barnabas Collins, is not in Night of Dark Shadows. It, it's, uh, it stars David Selby, Laura Parker, and Kate Jackson, and is a ghost story. It's not about vampires. It's a very unusual film. I was just watching it the other day, and just to see the opening credits playing over the action of the film, like way over the action of the film, to the point where I was having a hard time seeing the actors beneath the credits, but these scenes are just playing out. I was just like, this is very unusual to see this way. Yes, and uh, the the credits are in red, which sometimes makes it a little bit hard to see. But that was the style in in movies, essentially pre Star Wars. Many, most of the the credits of the film were at the beginning, and a holdover we still see today is the James Bond movies that still do that. But most of the credits were at the beginning, and there was some sort of song going on in most movies, or as in these movies, the the like on TV shows, the credits we're going wild after the action has had begun and you're right so you do have to sort of watch uh the action with one eye and the credits with the other but that wasn't uh, all that unusual back then most movies began that way with some action happening uh, under the credits so why did dark shadows stop in 71 well a, a lot of different reasons uh Dan Curtis himself was tiring of the uh, the show and uh, wanted to move on to to other projects. He still was interested in it, but not necessarily to the great degree that he was at the beginning. And uh, some of the actors were getting restless and uh, probably would have left the show before long. 
and it was an ambitious, expensive show to produce because of special effects and makeup and period costumes and things like that when they went back in time. But um, I think one of the reasons was that the demographics were wrong. Um, the, many of the people who were watching the show, and the show still had good ratings, were not necessarily people who would go out and buy the, the soap and shampoo and things that were, were advertised on the show because a, a lot of children and teenagers were watching. And uh, like I say, in the four years that I watched, I guess I went from like age 7 to 12 or 8 to 12, something like that. So I, I wasn't necessarily going out and buying what was advertised on the show. So... Um, I think economics, demographics, logistics, all everything like that entered into it. And the show, uh, unlike the slower-moving traditional soap operas of the time, was very fast-moving. Sometimes maybe it it moved too fast because if you if you went on vacation or something and missed five or six episodes they could have wrapped up the whole story and, and gone back in time or gone into parallel time, or it would be totally different. You know, if you missed just a few episodes, that made it exciting. You had to see every single day because something important happened almost every single day. But um, that, that it may have become too hard to follow by the end because uh, by the end of the show, they had gone back in time several times and even gone into the past and then into the parallel time of that past. So uh, some viewers perhaps had become confused or maybe even disenchanted like Curtis himself, although I, I certainly loved it until the very end and was very sorry to see it canceled and replaced by Password. Now, I know that he had done the um, strange case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde while Dark Shadows was also going on. But after Dark Shadows was over, was uh, The Night Stalker his first project after that? Yes, uh, it was. He uh, he and his wife and three daughters moved from um, New York out to uh, Los Angeles and... Um, um, Dan Curtis uh, got the job of uh, producing The Night Stalker. Uh, he did not direct uh, that movie. John Llewellyn Moxie, who was a, a, a well-known TV director and, and uh, some movies as well, was had already been signed to direct, but the producer, Everett Chambers, had, had dropped out to, to make a, a new TV show called Columbo, so they needed a new producer. So Curtis uh, jumped into the project that way. Uh, but uh, even though he was not directing, he, he did have a hand in the shaping of the movie and the look and the feel, along with the great uh, writer, Richard Matheson, who wrote Somewhere in Time, The Incredible Shrinking Man, and I Am Legend. Matheson wrote this script uh, based on an unpublished novel by Jeff Rice, so the Night Stalker came out in January of 1972 and, and became instantly became the highest-rated made-for-TV movie ever. It supplanted Brian's song and remains one of the highest-rated made-for-TV movies. So naturally, the, uh, the network wanted a sequel. So exactly one year later, January of 73, The Night Strangler came out, written again by Richard Matheson and this time directed by... 
Dan Curtis. Uh, for some of his projects in the 70s, Curtis only produced and had somebody else direct, but then he decided, well, I like doing both, so I'll do that from now on. And so he did direct The Night Strangler, um, and then just a month after The Night Strangler, in February of 1973, that was when the Norlis tapes came out on NBC. Uh, the two Night Stalker movies were on ABC, and the Norlis tapes was on NBC. Curtis did most of his work, almost all of it, for ABC, but occasionally did something for NBC like the Norlis tapes or for CBS, such as his his and Matheson's great adaptation of Dracula starring Jack Palance. And that came out in February of 74. So uh, the 70s was Curtis's most active um, in terms of the number of TV shows. Uh, but of course, he spent all of the 1980s uh, directing The Winds of War and War and Remembrance, two enormous TV miniseries that took him all over the world. He really seemed to specialize in the supernatural with his television movie work. Was he ever afraid until, obviously, Winds of War and War and Remembrance? Was he afraid of being kind of the horror director? Is that why he went into the, the war films that he ended up doing? Yes, I think so. After... Um, he, Burnt Offerings came out in the theater in 1976, and then in 1977 he did a, a, a trilogy movie called Dead of Night and a very entertaining monster movie called Curse of the Black Widow. But then he decided that he had had enough of horror for a while. Uh, he said, you know, I don't know whether I can squeak another door I think he was underestimating himself, but he, he he wanted to do something a little bit different. So next he made two made-for-TV movies that, sort of in, in the vein of the Waltons about a family in the 1930s based on his own family in Bridgeport, Connecticut in, uh, uh, in the 30s. And um, after that, uh, he he uh, did a couple more made-for-TV movies on a Western, The Last Ride of the Dalton Gang, and a short-lived TV show that was really his only flop, Super Train. It was, it was sort of a, a copy of The Love Boat, only people falling in love and solving mysteries on a train instead of a boat. And... Uh, you know, some of his movies are obviously are more successful than others, but really his only out-and-out -out flop was Super Train. That was in 1979, same as his very good Western, The Last Ride of the Dalton Gang. But after that, he sort of turned his attentions to his two World War II miniseries and spent all of the 1980s making them because the first one came out in 83, and then he immediately went back after a year went to work on the next uh, one, which aired in two parts in 88 and 89. So he he was the hardest working director in Hollywood, perhaps, in the 1980s. Going back to uh, the Night Strangler and the Norlis tapes, what do you know about the production of those? Yes, uh, the, the Night Stalker was shot in Las Vegas and took place there, and the Night Strangler was filmed in Seattle and took place there. Um, and... Um, the Norlis tapes uh, uh, was shot uh, around Monterey and Carmel, um, and some in San Francisco too. Uh, Dan Curtis's movies at that time had a strong sense of place, 
whether it was the house in uh, House of Dark Shadows or the house in Burnt Offerings or um, locales like Las Vegas, Seattle, and elsewhere. So um, um, the Norlis tapes, in a way, was uh, is definitely in the same vein as his Night Stalker and Night Strangler movies uh, because it follows the format of a uh, um, an outsider reporter who is investigating the supernatural. Although Darren McGavin in the two Night Stalker movies uh, and Roy Thinnis of the Invaders uh, in the Norlis tapes played the parts very differently. Was the Norlis tapes imagined to be a pilot for something for a series or was it always intended to be a standalone film? No, it was uh, it was shot as a pilot. Um, Curtis and his writer William F. Nolan, who co-wrote Logan's Run, had the idea that they uh, they would turn this into a series. And um, uh, William F. Nolan uh, actually wrote a script for a second Norlis um, movie or episode uh, called The Return that would have involved time travel. David Norlis, played by Roy Thinnis, would go back in time and, and encounter his young self. Uh, but uh, the, there wasn't enough interest, the ratings weren't big enough, and there was a writer's strike that hit at that moment, and so nothing ever became, uh, nothing ever more came of the Norlis tapes. Hmm. Was he fine, kind of, um, I mean, because it's interesting that he didn't, go on to work on the Kolchak TV series. Was was he yes. just pretty much done with that at the time? Well, um, neither Curtis nor Matheson was involved in the TV show Kolchak the Night Stalker, which ran for 20 episodes in 1974-75 on ABC, because uh, Curtis said that he didn't think it could be done. He, he said he didn't think that that, you know, having a different monster on the show every week would hold up or was feasible. And obviously, you know, as, as good as some of those cold check episodes are and not so good as the others are, it didn't last long. It lasted for just 20 episodes, but that was due to a lot of factors too, uh, actors and, and writers and problems and things. Uh, so, Curtis really didn't think he could keep up the the phenomenon that was Kolchak, but I guess after he realized that it had hit so big, he decided, well, maybe he could continue with the Norlis tapes either as a series of movies or maybe uh, a TV series. What was Dan Curtis like to work with? Because when I read stories about him, it seems like people talk about him having a very fiery temper. Yes, he, he could be. He he was very gruff and harsh. He could be, uh, and uh, he could he could yell at times when things went wrong or he or the actors were not performing the way he wanted them to. Uh, um, but uh, the testament to his um, his uh, genius is that um, the actors lined up to work with him again and again and again. You know, um, if you were in one Dan Curtis movie, you probably came back for two or three or four, or in the case of a Dark Shadows actor, John Carlin, 14 Dan Curtis productions. But um, many actors worked with him two or three times or more, um, and 
didn't have any complaints. Polly Bergen, who was in both Winds of War miniseries, said Dan could be difficult, but he never was with me. I would work with him again any time. And other people, like Peter Graves, uh, said that same thing. And and Curtis liked uh, using the same people over and over again. Uh, he had done that with Dark Shadows. It was like a repertory company because the same actors would play many different roles on the show. And he at one time, Curtis said, you know, if you get the right actors, you don't have to tell them anything because they'll do it. They'll perform. And so once he... Uh, found someone he liked, he would stick with him or her. He, Curtis once said, I, I hired people that I liked on Dark Shadows. He said some of them couldn't act very well when they came on, but they learned that. But I hired them because I liked them and wanted to work with them. And I think that's true of almost any job. Um, likeability is one of the factors that will get you hired. Um, but so in so many of the actors came back again and again to work with him in a in a movie or in a, a late night production or um the winds of war or whatever and there were a few actors like John Carlin and Jane Storm from Dark Shadows and uh uh Scott Brady an actor who had been in westerns and film noir uh and Jeffrey Lewis who was Juliet Lewis's father and Matt Clark and uh, Mills Watson, people like that, would turn up in big or small roles in many of his movies simply because he liked the people and he knew they were good. They, he knew that he could get a good performance out of them and, and they would uh, work well for him. Karen Black, you know, in Trilogy of Terror and Burnt Offerings, and he, he uh, was always very, uh, praised her very highly for her good work in those movies. So yes, uh, there are stories of Curtis screaming and yelling and, and, and uh, being angry, but the end result is all of these great movies, and so I guess the people didn't really mind the shouting. Well, even when it comes to the writers, I mean, it seems like Matheson and Nolan were there for him for so many years. Oh, yes. Um, uh, Matheson, you know, did a half dozen uh, productions with him, and, and William F. Nolan wrote his two Melvin Purvis uh, crime dramas and burnt offerings and the Norlis tapes. Uh, uh, Bill Nolan, who is still alive, uh, approaching 90 years old, but still writing, he, he recently had his 400th story in, a, in an anthology. Uh, Bill Nolan said that uh, Curtis's three favorite writers were Richard Matheson, um, he himself, William F. Nolan, and Earl Wallace, who uh, wrote Curse of the Black Widow and uh, uh, When Every Day Was, uh, I, I mean, um, The Last Ride of the Dalton Gang, and uh, co-wrote the two war miniseries. And also Earl Wallace co-wrote the Oscar-winning screenplay of Witness, the Harrison Ford movie. But uh, Nolan said that uh, Curtis's favorite writers were Matheson, Nolan and Earl Wallace, and, and he went back to them again and again, because there again, I guess Curtis knew he'd found a good one, and so he stuck with with that writer, because he knew that that writer would, would produce for him. Now, what is it about Dan Curtis? Why have you dedicated three books to um, the works of Dan Curtis? 
Well, I, uh, I just uh, have enjoyed writing about him, and the first book published by McFarlane called The Television Horrors of Dan Curtis is an outgrowth of my Ph.D. doctoral dissertation. Um, in '06, I was gearing up to write my dissertation and get my doctor's degree, and I was thinking of writing it about film noir, especially the great movie Chinatown. But at that very time... March of 06, Dan Curtis died. And so uh, a really terrific website called Scoop asked me to write his obituary. It's a, a, a Scoop is a, an e-newsletter that comes out every week. And so I wrote the, uh, the obituary and enjoyed doing that and essentially wrote it off the top of my head because I knew a great deal about Dan Curtis because I'd been studying him and writing some things about him for a long time. And so I thought to myself, well, I already know so much about Curtis and have resources and, and things about him, and he has just now died, so I should write my dissertation about him. Someone needs to document his work. So uh, I wrote the dissertation, and then um, uh, a couple of years later, it came out uh, in a slightly revised and reshaped form, although not much as the book, The Television Horrors of Dan Curtis. But uh, then I realized that there was so much more to say about Curtis, much more than just his horror productions, which are uh, fantastic. But as I said earlier, he, he did a Western, and he did love stories and family dramas and mysteries, crime dramas and everything. So um, I decided, well, um, I'll, I'll write another one and focus on his mysteries and crime dramas like his Melvin Purvis, G-Man, and Kansas City Massacre crime dramas and some of his late-night ABC Wide World Mystery uh, movies. And um, uh, because Jim Pearson of uh, Dan Curtis Productions, MPI, Home Video, and the Dark Shadows Festival uh, shared pictures with me of, of all of the different Curtis productions uh, going back to uh, the 60s on up through his, his later work, such as the, the UFO miniseries Intruders. And there were so many pictures that I did not use in the first book. The first book had about 70 pictures, but I had 70 more. And so I decided, well, more needs to be said, and I want the fans to see all of these great pictures, many of them never being published before. So I wrote uh, a second book called House of Dan Curtis, The Television Mysteries of the Dark Shadows Auteur. And, of course, House of Dan Curtis sounds like House of Dark Shadows. And I was writing about Dan Curtis Productions, the production House of Dan Curtis. And so this past April, my third and apparently last book about Curtis came out. Since I'd done a play on House of Dark Shadows, I figured I needed to do one on the next movie, so I wrote Nights of Dark Shadows, the television epics of the Dark Shadows auteur, meaning all of the nights when we sat down and watched a great TV show produced and directed by Curtis, Nights of Dan Curtis. And so all three of the books have a long career overview chapter that details every single one of his four dozen productions. But uh, whereas the first two books focus on the horror movies or the crime dramas, mysteries, this last one had in-depth chapters on Dracula 
and the last ride of the Dalton Gang, the Western, and um, the winds of war and war and remembrance. Uh, and uh, the, whereas the foreword to the previous written by John Carlin, who acted in over a dozen of his productions, uh, Larry Wilcox, the star of Chips and one of the stars of The Last Ride of the Dalton Gang, very graciously wrote a, a wonderful essay about working with Dan Curtis, and it was so good I used it as the foreword to the book. Very cool. You know, I have no real concrete knowledge of Dark Shadows. I remember it vaguely as a, a kid growing up. So you being what I would consider one of the mo- the foremost uh, experts on the Dark Shadows, what did you think of the Burton film? Um, well, I wrote about it in my last book. Um, it was a mixed bag. I thought uh, some, of it, some of it was very good. Some of it I did not like. Um, the uh, when the m- movie was being dramatic, uh, romantic, and horrific, it was very well done. But unfortunately, I, I thought that the the silly uh, humor and comedy uh, was overdone and and not to my liking. But uh, in terms of, of the the prologue that shows more or less the origin of Barnabas Collins and and. Um, uh, the the more serious parts of the movie, and of course the fantastic sets. I, I loved the way the uh, Collinwood Mansion and and Collinsport, Maine, the fishing village looked, and he, we even got Christopher Lee in a scene. So uh, there were many good things about the movie, and and Johnny Depp played uh, the part well. Uh, all of the actors played their parts well, although we didn't get to see enough of some of the other actors. But then what I did not care for was uh, the, the the comedy and the, the, the farcical nature of some of the scenes, because Dark Shadows was not a comedy. It was serious. Now, it was campy, and there was unintentional humor at times, but the actors there in the studio were, were not going for comedy. They did not play slapstick or play anything for laughs at all. The the only way that material could work is if they they took it very, very seriously. But because of the outlandish nature of some of the plots and the characters, some humor did creep in at times and but it was unintentional, but that gives the 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 show a, a campy flavor in some places. But it's like the Batman TV show. You can look at it and laugh at it, or you can take it very, very seriously, as uh, as all of us who were kids at that time did, and, and enjoy it either way. So with Dark Shadows, too, yes, you can find things to laugh at. Occasionally, uh, a, a set piece uh, falls down, or the wall shakes, or, or there's some sort of blooper or mishap. So you can pick out things to laugh at, or if you really concentrate and, and focus on the characters, it's not funny to you. It's, it's as serious as any of the other soap operas that you watch and enjoy. Uh, I have written introductions uh, to some books by Hermes Press in Pennsylvania, reprinting all of the Gold Key Dark Shadows comic books and uh, the Gold Key Story Digest magazine, a one-shot prose novel, and um, uh, so seven of those books have come out, and Hermes Press is going to put out a, a, an eighth and final book reprinting 
the Dark Shadows newspaper comic strip, which ran in papers from 71 to 72. Uh, so I, I've done that, and then I have uh, uh, been an associate producer on some Dan Curtis, Robert Cobert soundtrack CDs, uh, a, 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 a two-CD set of the music from the 1991 nighttime version of Dark Shadows, and um, oh, uh, uh, the uh, the strange case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, and then uh, I associate produced and also wrote the liner notes for. Um, the CD soundtrack of Burnt Offerings, the 1976 Karen Black, Oliver Reed movie, and um, the, uh, uh, the, the Dracula, uh, the Jack Palance uh, Dracula movie. Uh, almost all of, of Dan Curtis's productions uh, have music written by Robert Cobert. Um, and, and Cobert was nominated for an Emmy Award for music, and uh, wrote one of the, the Guinness Book of World Records says it's one of the longest movie scores ever, his, his music for the two World War II miniseries. So um, almost all of Curtis's uh, movies have great and distinctive music by Robert Cobert, who is still alive. He's 92. And uh, they were such a team like Alfred Hitchcock and Bernard Herrmann or Blake Edwards and Henry Mancini that uh, you could tell the look and the sound of a Dan Curtis movie because you heard that Robert Cobert music and you saw John Carlin or Karen Black or uh, some of the people who were in more than one Curtis movie. And so uh, you knew that, that this was a Dan Curtis production, as it said at the end of every movie and TV show. Of all the things that you've collected for Dark Shadows, do you have a favorite piece of your collection? Hmm. Well, um, I don't know. The, the Dark Shadows Viewmaster is terrific, and the Barnabas Collins Halloween mask, and um, oh, um, the, the model kits and the puzzles and um, things like that. I enjoy all of it. I have most of the collectibles except for just a, a, a few things that were very, very rare uh, that only a few people have, such as the groovy horror head pillows, which were pillows uh, in, the, in the shape of the faces of, of uh, the vampire, the werewolf, and the witch. Not necessarily the actors who played them on the show, but more generic renderings of a vampire, werewolf, and, and witch. But um, luckily, I, I have many of the collectibles because I got a lot of them back then, you know, when, when the show was on, and I would buy the model kits or the puzzles or the board games or trading cards or records out of the store, and then in later years collecting and going to garage sales and flea markets and sci-fi conventions and the Dark Shadows festivals, and then now in the age of the Internet and eBay and everything, uh, some of these collectibles still turn up. Well, thank you so much for your time tonight. This has been a real pleasure talking with you. Oh, you're welcome. I have enjoyed it.
Well, I know you worked on the Night Killers with Richard Matheson. I was curious, when had you met him and how did you meet him? Well, Rich and I, uh, I call him Rich. I called him Dick for years, and he didn't like that name Dick because it, it had connotations of sexuality about it. And he said, I'm not Dick, I'm Rich. And, and so I called him Rich. His wife called him Rich. And so everybody near the end called him Rich Matheson. Anyway, we, I knew him from the early 1950s uh, when when he became part of the group with uh, Charles Beaumont and, and uh, Ray Bradbury and myself and George Clayton Johnson and a few other people, uh, Jerry Soul, Robert Block, Harlan Ellison. And uh, we uh, we got to know each other that way, and then we worked on several projects together before uh, before the uh, before the Night Killers. That was probably the last project we worked on. We worked on uh, 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 the uh, Jack Finney novel. Uh, we called it Under the Bounding Main, and that was made with the Rod Serling screenplay. Finally, uh, as Assault on a Queen, we did the early version. We did a couple of uh, spec screenplays that didn't get anywhere. Uh, and then we did a lot of work together on Trilogy of Terror. I don't know whether you're aware of that or not. Uh, I did the first two episodes, and he wrote the Devil Doll, the Zuni Doll, that everybody remembers that one. And I worked on the second Trilogy of Terror also. But the uh, Night Killers came about because he had done the Night Strangler and the Night Stalker, and he didn't have any ideas for a third one. Uh, Dan Curtis was a producer, director on it, and he said, uh, why don't we get Nolan to take a shot at it and see what he can come up with. So I came up with the idea of uh, aliens taking over Hawaii. And not, not, not aliens necessarily. Well, the aliens were replacing the, uh, uh, the, the government of Hawaii with uh, duplicate lookalikes, uh, but they're actually under the control of the aliens. And I, I wrote the first script, 100 pages in a week, and then I, and then I took it to Rich, and he rewrote it. And uh, and that was what we were going to get produced, and we were a week away from going to Hawaii to start production when they sold the series as a weekly series, and and that killed the whole thing, and we were we were out of it by that point. Mm. You so that's the, that's the story on that one. I like how you kind of uh, you, you put Kolchak on that plane, and he thinks he's going to be investigating the ufo you twist it so he's investigating the government officials death and then that leads back to the ufo thing that was really really clever oh that that was all my idea and uh i was pleased with it and rich was very pleased with it and so was dan and everybody seemed very happy with it but that weekly series came along and killed the whole thing they would have definitely filmed it if it hadn't been for that when was the first time that you met Dan Curtis? I met Dan, and uh, again through Richard Matheson, I was over at uh, Rich's house one day, and he said that there's this guy that just came into town from New York. He he, he did Dark Shadows in New York, and now he wants to start a, uh, a company out here on the West Coast, and he's looking for writers, and all you ought to go over and talk to him. Uh, this was around 1971, and uh, I said, yeah, well, that sounds good. So, in those days, they had movies of the week, ABC, NBC, and CBS. Every week had their own movie, two-hour, hour-and-a-half movie of the week, and that's all gone now. You don't have anything like that today, but that's that's what we had then, and, and they were always looking for new movies of the week. And Dan Curtis came along, and he was the perfect director for movies of the week. He did uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. He did Dracula. He did Frankenstein. He did... Uh, all kinds of other uh, uh, other movies of the week, and then a lot of them with me. Anyway, so I, I go over there and I meet him, and and he says, "Well, what do you want to do, Nolan? You want to you want to be a producer with me?" And I said, "No, no, I want to write for you. I don't want to produce anything." I said, "I just want to write." 
And he said, well, I got this kind of idea that Fred Mustard Stewart came up with a walking dead man here. I'm not going to do anything with it. See what you can do with it. And he handed me a couple of pages of, uh, of, of notations and uh, kind of a very sketchy outline by Fred Mustard Stewart. Immediately, I threw it out completely and came up with the Scarab Egyptian eternal life idea uh, for the Norlis tapes. And that's, and that's what we shot. And I think that... Uh, that Dan did a great job with that because he kept it raining all the way through. He said it should be raining all the way through this story. And he he had the rain hoses out there, and he was drenching everybody. <laughs> so it worked out well. It worked out well, I thought. That was my first uh, job with him, and then I did 16 others with him. We, I worked with him for a number of years. He liked my work. Uh, I was his favorite writer along with Richard Masson. Uh, so we did a lot of work for Dan. He was He was a great guy. I was very fond of him. You know, for a long time, the Norlis tapes wasn't available anyplace. You know, people would just talk about it uh, from their memory. But finally, getting to see it again—it's really a remarkable film. Just about everything Dan did is now available on on uh, on tape. Uh, uh, you know, and the, uh, there's if you can you can almost order his complete work now. But there was a time when you couldn't find certain ones, and Norlis was one of the hardest ones to find. You're right. What was the response to that one? Uh, very, very good. It's it's considered a classic among Dan's work. I mean, probably one of the best things he ever did. Uh, uh, I, I'm very happy with the response. People loved it and said that uh, it captured the the mood of the the the, uh, the the scare of living death Egyptian motif was strong in there, and that carried the thing. And then there was had this creature, this demon creature, which came to life, and and uh, and they they had to destroy it. it. It's a pure fantasy, pure horror. But it seemed to work, and people liked it. Yeah, I got good response from it. It reminds me a lot of Kolchak, but a much more serious version of it. Well, this was before the Kolchak. I, I, I think, now wait a minute, I think it was after the Night uh, Stalker, but before the Night Strangler. I think it was in the middle. And uh, and Dan Dan said, I don't, I don't want to do a Kolchak, but let's do something along the same lines. And so... We we were conscious of the fact that we were into into that Kolchak territory, even though Norlis is not Kolchak, and it, it's it's not really a Kolchak adventure, but it has that feeling, that aura. Uh, so certainly, I I recognize that, and that was intentional. Mm-hmm. You know, um, a lot of people, it seems like lately, are rediscovering. I know people remember this movie, but it feels like more of an audience is coming back to burnt offerings these days. Yeah, I had a lot of fun with that one. Uh, I was unable to go up uh, to Oakland where it was filmed, on the, and he rented a Dunsmore house. He rented this uh, this giant house that was uh, vacant at the time for the uh, production, and got Karen Black again, who'd done Trilogy of Terror, and uh, he got Betty Davis. That was one of Betty Davis's last films, and uh, so that was uh, that was done up there. I never got a chance to go up on the set. I wanted to, but I, I was uh, busy with other assignments down here, and I couldn't. I couldn't get up there. But uh, yeah, that 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 has grown from being a very poorly received, uh, uh, critically. Uh, uh, the critics destroyed it originally. They said it was terrible, too slow moving, and and uh, it was too sensational at the end. And it was all. And and then through the years, year by year, it's grown in stature until now. It's considered one of the best horror movies ever made. Uh, people come up to me and say, "What a great classic it is!" So I'm really pleased with the with the reaction now. But it took a long time, and the initial reaction was quite negative. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. It, now, even uh, when you talk about uh, The Shining, people seem to bring up burnt offerings as being almost like the prototype for The Shining. 
I don't know whether there's any tie in there or not. I I I did uh, I did meet Steve King and get to know him a little bit, and we had a drink together in his room, and we talked about horror. And I asked him, I said, Steve, what is your secret about the uh, about your horror? Is there is there a single secret that you would uh, or a single method that you would talk about in regarding the horror you write? And he said, Yeah. He said, I uh, I do I do one thing all the time, and I make sure to do it. And I said, Well, what is that? And he said, I. I create real three-dimensional characters in great depth and give them a great family background before I take them into the house of horrors. Uh, he said, I, I spent 100 pages on the, uh, on the family in The Shining before they ever got to the Overlook Hotel. And by the time they get there, the reader feels he knows the characters. They're personal friends of his, uh, he says. And, and, and at, at that point, as a writer, you can take your audience anywhere. The audience will follow you anywhere because you've created real people. So I've always remembered that talk I had with him. But no, I don't think The Shining is related uh, in any way to anything else I did. If so, it's pure accident, you know. Right. Do you mind, can I ask you a couple questions about The Intruder? Sure. I'm curious, how did you uh, come to be an actor in that one? Well, I've been acting all my life. I, I was I was in one of the Dan Curtis's movies a week as a gang member in Melbourne Purvis G-Man. I was a gang member. I was also, I did a narration uh, trip to the moon for Morris Scott Dolan's production. I was, I was in school plays. Uh, I'm a natural ham. I like acting. And, and so uh, when, when Charles Beaumont wrote The Intruder, and he got Roger Corman bought it. Uh, Corman says, "Well, uh, I hear you want to take some of your friends up to Missouri, where we're going to film this thing. I'm a little worried about that." He said, "Because they're not professional actors." And and, and Charles said, "Believe me, Nolan can take that role. I was it was a uh, it was a supporting role. It wasn't a cameo. It's, I'm I'm in several of the scenes. I don't know whether you've seen it or not, but I'm in it a lot." And uh, and and he said, "Could could Nolan handle that? That's pretty." Uh, he said, "Oh no!" I said, "He can handle it." And he said, "If you want, if you don't believe me, bring him in, and we'll do a tape." And so I came into the apartment of Charles Beaumont, and Roger was there, and he said, "Let's do a tape and see what your what your accent is." And I said, "Okay," and and uh, they started the tape rolling. I said, "That son of a bitch, he come down that road doing about sixty mile an hour. I couldn't do nothing but just stay stand on the way and wonder why he's going by by me so fast." And he said, "Dear God, that's great." I said, "Well, it ought to be. I grew up in Missouri. I said I spent the first 19 years of my life in Kansas City. I know how these guys talk." And I said, "You know, there's no problem." So that that started my my acting career with with uh, with Roger Corman. He wanted me to play a couple of uh, other roles, but I turned those down. I'm not I'm not really an actor. I'm a writer, and I want to I want to stick with writing. <laughs> What was it like working with William Shatner? Uh, Shatner has has been a performer now for 30 or 40 years. He has done many, many things from Captain Kirk on Star Trek to, uh, to, to several other roles, and he's never, ever been as good as he was in The Intruder. That, that performance that he gave in that movie... It was a small little movie and never made any money and nobody nobody saw it and everything. But I'm telling you, I consider that his performance in that film is absolutely Academy Award uh, level without question. He should have if it had been a big picture, he would he would have been nominated and he would have won. He he was absolutely superb as a human being. I didn't like him very much. We didn't get along that well and. Uh, he seemed to me to be too ego-driven, and uh, he didn't trust anybody, and he was uh, sort of a one-man band. But, but man, what a performance. I mean, I'll never forget. I was stunned by how good he was as Adam Kramer. Uh, but we weren't really at odds with each other, but we didn't, we didn't exactly become bosom buddies, let's put it that way. <laughs> 
I seem to remember hearing that uh, when he slaps you, you didn't necessarily know it was coming. Yeah, yeah. He said, now look, there's going to be a scene where you're going to come up behind me and say, what are we going to do next? I'll be on the phone, and I'll turn around, and I'll whack you in the uh, in the side of the head. But, of course, I won't really hit you because it'll it's it's movie time, and I know how to pull my punches. I, I'm a professional. I know how to do this. I said, well, you're sure? I said, I don't want to get hit in the, in the neck really hard. And he said, oh, don't worry about it. You won't feel a thing. So then we come up to the scene, and I come up behind him, and I say, what are we going to do now? And he says, shut up. And he swings around and whacks me on the neck with full force, knocks me completely out of frame. I'm completely out of the frame. And I have to come back in, and I'm really, I really look furious at him. And, of course, I was because he, he double-crossed me. He lied to me. And afterwards, I said, listen, why did you hit me? And he said, well, you know, I want to make it a real scene. And I said, yeah, well, it was real all right. <laughs> <laughs> What are you working on these days? Oh my I'm I'm trying to get to a hundred books. I want a hundred books to my credit before I retire. I'll be ninety years old in about a, a year and a half and I and I wanna I wanna reach the, a total of one hundred books before I I, uh, I retire in in my nineties and uh, so far I'm up to ninety four and I'm working on six others and uh, once they come out and are published and polished and finished I'll I'll reach the goal. So I, I will reach a hundred but probably by the end of next year or so. That's what I've been working on. I got six different books I'm working on. Oh, wow. That's amazing. Yeah, I read your uh, treatment for The Thing. I was really impressed with that. Well, that's very disappointing to me because Universal came to me and said, we want to remake The Thing. I'd always loved the original movie, but I felt it had a lot of flaws in it. It, it the guy was too much like a Frankenstein monster, and, and also he wasn't. Why did these people come back to that place? Why, why did the... Uh, uh, this creature come back to that particular frozen place on, on Earth, and I said that's because there was a giant mothership buried under the ice, and he and he he wanted to come back and see if he could deal with it and free it and maybe bring it to life again, and that that was a, a reason for him to be there in the original movie. There was no reason for him to come there, so I I thought I had done a really good job of. Uh, of uh, strengthening it and extending it and everything. I was very happy with the with the treatment, and they were all set to go. And then John Carpenter came in with his version, and that was the end of it. I mean, that's the way Hollywood can, can be. You can be all ready to go to do something, and then something else happens. Uh, I spent two months writing, uh, no, actually three months, writing uh, Peter Straub's Floating Dragon, adapting it for, for a movie the week, and I, I, had, I was all ready to go. Uh, on, a, on a green light basis, they were going to film it, and the, the week they were going to start, they fired everybody at the at the network and all the uh, projects that this particular group of uh, producers and so forth got thrown out, and one of them was Floating Dragon. So it can happen that way. You just you just play the odds with Hollywood. You you have to. I worked on fifty projects, and only forty of them. Uh, only about 20 of them, rather, out of the 50 actually got produced. But I worked on 50 different projects uh, over the years. Fantastic. Thank you so much, sir. back and we are talking about the norless tapes and the night killers and in this part of the show we'll definitely be talking mostly about the night killers now i did want to read the opening narration we start off at each of these episodes with kolchak's narration and this one um, is uh, slightly different because this only exists in script form 
This is the true story behind the most incredible series of events to ever take place in Hawaii. A story so astonishing that, even to this moment, I have trouble believing it really happened. Not that you or anyone else read the story. Why? Because the lid was clamped down to prevent mass panic. Who am I? Carl Kolchak, news reporter. And you better listen carefully to what I'm going to tell you, because this story may not be over yet. So this is Kolchak Goes Hawaii, much like the way that (laughs) Beetlejuice uh, almost went Hawaii. But this is Kolchak Goes Hawaii, and it is Vincenzo bringing Kolchak out to the island to do some investigation. I like the way that the story unfolds, because as Kolchak is coming to Hawaii, he's looking at a newspaper and sees the story about uh, an alien sighting. So when he arrives at Vincenzo's place, he's just like, oh, yeah, you want me to investigate the aliens? He's like, what? No, no, not that. No way am I going to have you investigate the aliens. You're going to investigate what happened to this particular politician on the island who uh, died and there was an explosion at the hospital and all these people were injured. And that kind of sets up our mystery. But it's nice that, so this screenplay was co-written actually by William F. Nolan and Richard Matheson, Matheson who had done the previous two Kolchaks. And I like the way that they plant that seed of the aliens right there at the beginning and then give you a nice twist that this is actually a, a different investigation. So I'm curious, what did you guys think about the Night Killers? What did you think about it, Amanda? I really liked it. Uh, I thought it flowed really well. I sat down to read it, and I was done before I knew it. I, I, it goes from point A to point B. There's not a lot of like subplots in it, which I like. And it's got a lot of really great characterizations. I think the interplay between Vincenzo and Kolchak is really funny, at the, especially at the beginning. I think that, though it might be overly narrated, I felt like there was a lot more than I remember that kind of threw me out of it a little, but as far as the story itself, I thought it was pretty solid. I think it's maybe more obvious now to read it and be like, Oh yeah, well he's planting the seed about the alien and this and that, but it's so much fun to go through it and to kind of join this adventure with Kolchak. And it is a little different than the first two. So I thought it was refreshing and I really enjoyed it. I kind of wish this had been made instead of the Night Strangler, because I think that the story in the Night Killers is a much more interesting story to tell than the story that they ended up telling in the Night Strangler, which was very close to the Night Stalker. I mean, it's it's got everything you want out of a Kolchak story, the interplay between him and Vincenzo. You've got this kind of crazy plot that, ends up like really working well in the in the kind of the universe of Kolchak. And then you have the great narration. I agree that there's a there's a, I think there's a tad too much narration. But at the same time, I, I can imagine that if, if this had gotten made, they may have cut some of that out for kind of the flow. But it, it's really good. And like I said, I, I'm disappointed that this is the one that didn't get made versus the Night Strangler being the one that did get made. I really like the way that the story went. Like I said, there's an explosion at the hospital. It ends up it's the lieutenant governor who has been rushed into the hospital. And then there was an explosion in his room and all these people died. And what they say is that it was, what, an oxygen tank that exploded and killed all these people. But it doesn't take very long for Kolchak to see that things just aren't necessarily adding up. 
And it's nice for me to see, we get to see a little bit more of Kolchak kind of outside of his reporter role, to see him kind of navigating Hawaii and the way that it's it's a different culture. I mean, the way that we would see Kolchak get around in Seattle, we would see him get around in Vegas, but we didn't necessarily see him like taking the bus or, you know, we would see him driving places here and there. But in this one, he is completely on his own. The way that he's taking a, a what, a tour of Hawaii, am I remembering this correctly? Well, he does get a car. He goes to that, is it called Chariots of, oh, I can't remember the name of it. Was it Chariots of the Gods? Yeah, something like that. It was like this ridiculous, like, used car place where he buys. Wink, he wink, a, wink. Yeah. He goes back and buys, like, three cars because they, and there's something wrong with all of them. And it's kind of an ongoing joke because, like, one car won't even stop. Like, he can't turn off the engine. And, and, um, I, he does tour, but I think he tours more towards the end. He, cause he, the realtor that he hooks up with, Kathy, who is his love interest in this, who's in her 20s, by the way, and they, they perfectly lay that out there because his love interests have to be 30 years younger than him, apparently. She's also a tour guide. And so, like, yeah. That's what it And was. so she's driving the bus around. She drives a helicopter or flies a helicopter. She does, she's like a Wonder Woman, is what she is, basically. And I like that. I like that she's this almost action star in her own right. She seems very put together in this. And so, yeah, she's a great character. And, yeah, they they fall in bed together really quick. I was very surprised. It just There's not a whole lot of tension before they're bumping uglies. They are just down to it. And she kind of lays it out like, okay, yeah, let's do this thing. Yeah, she's a really interesting character. I think she's more in line with uh, Joanne Flug's character in um, Night Strangler. They're very, like, you know, upbeat characters, and they're fun, but there's also a sense of strength to them and a sense of fearlessness, you know, because Joanne Paflug, or I would say Paflug, I'm sorry, I just like saying it that way, Um, she's ready to go out there and help him, you know, catch the Night Strangler, and I think Kathy is just as willing to fall into whatever adventure Kolchak is doing, and they get in a lot of trouble in the script. Yeah, because there was a huge conspiracy going on here, because the lieutenant governor... Actually, there was no oxygen tank explosion. What happened is that the lieutenant governor was actually replaced by a, uh, I don't want to say cyborg, an android, who, when they cut into him, the natural defenses or the defense system of the android kicked in and exploded so that there's no evidence of him being an android. And there is a whole series of people that are being replaced by androids. At one point, I was reminded a little bit of like the hidden when it, it's this whole um, like meeting coming together where it feels like anybody who isn't an android is going to be turned into an android. And it just becomes this whole thing. And then what's interesting is that, and I, I know I'm giving spoilers, so if you haven't read the screenplay, uh, I'm sorry. So feel free to stop the podcast and go read it. But um, you won't see this as a movie. <laughs> so so here's the spoiler that it's actually the the alien story and the governor's story, lieutenant governor's story actually collide and that it is the aliens that are behind this whole thing. And I really appreciate the way that they bring those things together. I think it was very, very clever. You know, it's interesting in the early days of the TV movie, they did. I, I can only think of one real strong instance, but I know it's happened more than once. You know, they didn't really venture into horror right away. But one of the first horror TV movies they made was called Daughter of the Mind. And it's actually an espionage thriller slash supernatural ghost story, or so we think. I should say there's a mystery to that. And I feel like 
they were dabbling in we can't we're not sure we can go straight horror in tv in a movie and sustain an audience so let's throw in this element that we know is really popular and so they're kind of doing the same thing here totally differently i mean it's unique it's not like daughter of the mind but it's in that vein of like let's put our toes in all these different pools and see how we can mix them together and it's really interesting the way they do it and i agree it's really fun it's a really really fun script but it is more in that direction of the comedy yes yeah it, it, pu- it oh, yeah. pushes it pushes the comedy if like if you had a problem with the comedy in the nice strangler it pushes that envelope even farther so it's nice that they set it on hawaii so you have this i don't want to say an insular community because hawaii is huge but that you know if as as kolchak could say it couldn't happen here right it's just this this little pocket of stuff that is happening but it's almost like a microcosm as far as what is going to happen here once the aliens are done with this stuff then it's going to move to the mainland and it might move east it might move west it might move both places maybe there's aliens in other places that are doing the same thing and we talked on the first episode chris about the way that Kolchak kind of predated Watergate. And this to me feels like it's right there as far as, you know, a governmental conspiracy as much as it is an alien conspiracy. When they tie the two, what is, what you would think is like disparate stories together and they tie them together and you're like, oh, okay, I see where this is going. I think it ultimately, it it does, like you said, it, it really ups the stakes of what is going on in the story. But I mean, that's for me, that's what was missing in the night strangler was like the stake. There needed to be stakes and there weren't any. And so in this, like right from the get go, there's these, like there are these stakes and you, you honestly, like you understand where the stakes are and what, and what's going on and what could happen if they don't stop this, if Kolchak doesn't stop this. So I think it's just, it's way more interesting and it's, you know, especially with the addition of aliens, because, you know, aliens is really far away from what we had seen up until this point as well, mind you, with Kolchak, you know, because supernatural is one thing. But when you veer into aliens, you can alienate, no pun intended, an entire part of your fan base, a la Indiana Jones, um, or you can actually make it work like they did in The Night Killers. There was tension between Kolchak and the cops, as there always is and probably always will be. But in this, that there is collusion, because we said at one point, like, wouldn't it be nice if Richard um, Anderson's character maybe was working with the cops or was was a cop? And then it turns out that he's, you know, also the killer. So there's that flip there. And in this, we have the one cop where it's like, he ends up being an android and it's like, well, was he an android the whole time or did they get to him? And it's almost like this invasion of the body snatchers feel where it's just like, oh, they got to this guy. They replaced him at some point. You know, are they going to replace Kolchak's girlfriend? What could happen? Are they going to replace Vincenzo or Crossbinder? It's like it could happen anywhere. And you feel like, you know, like Kevin McCarthy, like you're next, you're next. I really like that they just keep amping up the paranoia as far as you don't know who's real and who's not and that's such a nice thing to do i mean i was under the impression that kolchak gets replaced and he's a robot from here on out you think the entire <laughs> series he's a robot 
I, I think he actually got kidnapped by the Jackal, and he made a clone of Kolchak. <laughs> so the Kolchak TV show is just a clone of Kolchak. Kolchak died at an operating table somewhere high above Hawaii. That's so sad. <laughs> right? I don't like that. Don't worry, there's the clone. Yeah, there's the clone. But how funny would that be, though? Like, oh, Kolchak is actually a robot for the rest of the show. Like, oh, geez, I didn't see that coming. That was going to be the season two finale <laughs> for Kolchak. I, yeah, they're going to, they would uh, say, oh, yeah, no, here's the real Kolchak. This guy comes in, and he's got this big beard <laughs> and an eye patch and stuff, and he starts to, like, peel off the eye patch and takes the beard off, and it's like, oh, my God, it's really Carl Kolchak. How did this happen? He pulls out a gun shoots and he's like that wasn't the real Kolchak because we know that Kolchak has no problem killing people in cold blood so oh I know this one he like goes for it and you know there's there's such a dark edge to the screenplay because so many people die because like in the first scene alone everybody in that operating room is gets killed in the explosion and then people get killed throughout the whole thing I mean every time Kolchak might have a lead that person dies and then we find out that the governor has been killed and all these people that are a part of this conspiracy, I guess maybe the construction company in the Ridgeway Atomics or whatever. And you're like, that's like dozens of people dead, dead or missing, right? Because the one woman says her husband's gone. The ambulance attendant who might be an eyewitness has disappeared. We don't know what becomes of him. He could be in a cage somewhere for all we know. And so, you know, there's just such a dark edge to it when you get to the end of it. You're like, well, they killed like half of Hawaii for this episode or for this movie. Yeah, the first two movies, it's like, oh, you got five, six women that might die and maybe Kolchak is, is you know, like, or they did die and maybe Kolchak is going to die at the end if the creature actually gets his way. But yeah, they are just knocking people off left, right, and center. They don't care. And life is cheap in Hawaii. Ask Magnum. Everything else is expensive because you have to ship it in from the mainland. <laughs> that's right. That's right. I think I know where you're coming from on this, Chris. You would have liked to have had this made and actually kind of like the way that robots replace real people, have this replace the Night Strangler. Yeah, because ultimately this is a unique story. Mind you, it's not really, you know... Now, looking at it, you know, 40 years later, oh, this is derivative of stuff I've seen now. But back then when this was coming out and even now, like thinking about it versus the Night Strangler, this is a much more interesting story, a much more unique, interesting story than a guy who's killing women for their you know, blood. What I mean, it's never really disclosed 100 percent what's going on, what he's taking, their blood, their hypothalamuses. So I think this is a much more interesting story just, you know, from the get-go. At least even the idea is just more exciting. And how do you think this would have propelled the character? Do you think that this Carl Kolchak fits well into the Kolchak series? Or do you think that this – does he fit with what we've seen so far? I think so. I mean, there's a, there's a couple spots where it's – again, it just it veers a little too jokey for me. But I think it's it's more of the same from the character. I mean, what do you guys think? Yeah, I think it's pretty organic to how Kolchak is. It's tough for me to say whether I would want to see this over the Night Strangler because I do like the Night Strangler a lot. And this has obviously never been made, so it's hard for me to compare it. But I think that... It is so much in the same vein in terms of the way it treats the characters' relationships with each other, like Crossbender and uh, Vincenzo and Kolchak. And that's the heart of the story, isn't it? It's like the interplay with the characters. And so it's on par for me in terms of that with the Night Strangler. So I think 
I mean, I would be happy to see The Night Killers as a film, either with The Night Strangler or, uh, you know, in place of it, I feel. But at the same time, I'm glad The Night Strangler exists. You know, I'm not going to lie. I kind of wish that they had been able to dust the script off and done this one when they were doing maybe the new series or even have kept it around. I'm sure that there were rights issues when it came to the television series because there was that break. You know, this the television series kind of usurped this being made. So it was basically between one or the other. Either there's a third Kolchak movie or the television series gets made. And we ended up with the television series. So, Well, let's also not forget that Darren McGavin and Dan Curtis were apparently like hated one another as well at at this point. Let's not forget that as well, because I feel like that also fed into why this never got made. The kind of the falling out between the two of them didn't help either. But yeah, I, I wish that this would see the light of day. And yeah, to your point, Chris, I can see where there are elements that have been used uh, elsewhere since then. But uh, for the time, for 19, what, this would have been 74, I, I thought it was pretty darn solid. Yeah, it definitely has a lot of, the energy is just right there on the paper. That's what's so magical about it. I mean, I mean I've read, I haven't read a ton of scripts, but I've read a few. And some of them you really slog through, even when you see that the film that got made from it is really good. But this one, it just flows. I just think that it really kept the heart of what we love about Kolchak, the character, so much. And I like the mystery. I like how it travels along and it doesn't get carried away in subplots, but it still introduces all these really interesting characters. And I think it's really, it's got a sense of fun that really keeps it in vain with the first two films. So last time you were on the show, Amanda, we talked a little bit about the book that you have coming out where you are editing. And I'm curious, did you contribute also articles to it? I've supplied a lot of content to it, a lot of essays, because the book is like 30% essays, I guess, and 70% capsule reviews. And uh, I did a lot of the reviews, uh, mostly in the 90s and some in the 80s, because, you know, everybody loves 70s TV movies, so that w- it was easier to get submissions for that than, um, you know, the Tory Spelling movies or whatever, which I love. Well, the name of the book is, well, the short name of the book is Are You in the House Alone? A TV Movie Compendium 1964 to 1999. And that is coming out in May, I believe. Yeah, I think May 1st is the release date. But you can actually order it in hardcover through Head Press's website. They're a UK publisher. I have a copy of the hardcover. It's gorgeous. Fantastic. Yeah, they do a great job with their layouts and everything. So that should look really good. I'm excited to get my hands on it. I'm excited it's coming out. It was a long process. (laughs) And I'm really happy to see it here right now. And then you also have a talk that's coming up. You're talking at, uh, what is it, the uh, Miskatonic Institute? I will. That's in London. Um, They're all over the world. But I'll be speaking on April 20th at the Miskatonic Institute of Horror Studies, which is at the Horse Hospital in London. It's a Thursday night. If you're in the area, it's like 10 pounds, I think, to go. It's a three-hour talk. It's going to be me and two other contributors, Jennifer Wallace and Kayla Janice, who uh, most people are aware of. And uh, they both contributed to the book as well. And we're going to be talking about horror in TV movies, both real and imagined. So it's going to be like all the fantastical stuff and some of the real life stuff too. So it should be pretty interesting. And then you've even done a little bit of work with the Kinder Trauma Project, correct? Uh, well, I mean, I've worked with Kinder Trauma. I don't know that there's a Kinder Trauma project right now. I am working with um, Cinemaniacs. 
Uh, they're going to be doing a film journal. So Lee Gambin is an Australian writer, and he's written several books about like every genre possible. Right now, he's working on a book on Cujo, and a book called A Very Special Episode, which is going to be all those like Blossom and all Facts of Life shows. It's going to be like just essays about those episodes, and I'm contributing to that. And he's also doing a film journal which I'm assuming is going to be called Cinemaniacs, and it's going to be where he's uh, basically taking a theme, I'm, every issue, this is my understanding of it, and then he's trying to get all different types of essays for films that fit into that theme from all genres. He's trying to like get people interested in horror to see that maybe there's stuff in this drama or this musical that has some of the elements that they like in these types of horror films or whatever. And so the first issue is going to be about scarecrows and I'll be writing about the TV movie, dark night of the scarecrow and also a uh, night of the scarecrow, which is a 1995 direct to video horror movie by Jeff Burke. Um, I'm really excited about that. And I also have a chapter coming out in a book that Kayla and I can never say his last name. It's Paul Krupp. I know he's been on your projection booth is also the editor. It's called uh, Yuletide. Let me get the title. Yuletide Terror Christmas Horror on Film and Television. I'm not exactly sure when that's coming out, but they're uh, they're working on finishing it right now. And so I have a chapter in there and I'll be doing some capsule reviews. And I also have a essay in a book called When Animals Attack, which was edited by Vanessa Morgan, and I wrote about the 1973 TV movie Locust with Ron Howard, speaking of happy days. That's a really amazing book. Well, that sounds great. And then you've got your regular gigs that you do, the podcast and the blog. Can you plug those as well? Yeah, I'd be more than happy to. So Made for TV Mayhem is my blog, and um, uh, my newest review is a rebel cult movie called Strange Homecoming that kind of fell by the wayside. It's really amazing. I, I think everybody should see it. Um, and it has a companion podcast called Made for TV Mayhem Show, which I I have, I guess I'm the host, but I have two co-hosts. And um, one is Dan Budnick from the Bleeding Skull uh, book and from the website. And uh, the other one is Nate Johnson, who is um, on the Hysteria Continues uh, Slasher podcast. Our newest episode will actually be about 90s TV movies, which will be Tori Spelling centered. So, I mean, I don't know what your mileage is on Tori, but it's going to be a good time. Now, Chris, what is coming up on the Culture Cast? I know that you usually have theme months, and I'm curious what uh, what you've been doing in March and what is coming up in April. Well, uh, in March, we've been talking about sports movies because uh, there's this little thing in March that the kids like to call March Madness. So uh, we decided to piggyback off of that sensation and uh, talk sports movies. Uh, the final movie we're going to be talking about this month is a movie that I have been putting off seeing forever that would be field of dreams i've never seen it primarily because i cannot stand kevin costner as an actor so sorry if that offends anybody but for april we're having an undisclosed theme right now we're still cooking it up so it's not it's not ready to be revealed yet it's gonna be something good i can tell you that much so where can people catch the culture cast and check out all the good things at culture shock uh they can go to cultureshock.com that's culture with a k uh, and if you want to listen to the Culture Cast, you can head on over to iTunes or cultureshock.com slash culturecast. We're also on Mixler, where we do the podcast live and Stitcher Radio. If you want to do some reading and read my thoughts and my writer's thoughts, cultureshock.com is where you go to read. Culture Cast is where you go to listen to my terrible opinion on movies. Uh, now that you asked us to plug our stuff, Mike, where can the lovely listeners find your projection booth podcast what are you guys up to it is over at projection-booth.com we are just wrapping up a whole month of 
80s films. I don't know why I chose to do uh, 80s films in March this year, but it's working out well. We've had episodes on Beverly Hills Cop, coming up Dr. Detroit, so we kind of have a little Detroit theme going on there. But then also things like Never Too Young to Die, Making Mr. Right, and Joysticks. Joystick oh. is actually our sixth year anniversary episode, so I'm very excited for folks to listen to that, where we were having a rollicking good time talking about totally awesome video games. So, And then in April, it's another mixed bag. We're doing uh, classics like The Grand Illusion and The Red Shoes, and then also talking about kind of newer things like Existens. So, again, kind of all over the map, but uh, hopefully an eclectic bag to keep people very happy. So we will be back next month with our first actual episode where we were talking about the Kolchak TV show and how it came to be. Until then, we want to thank John Walker for our lovely theme music and all the people who have been leaving us ratings over at iTunes. Every single rating is really very helpful. And if you want to kind of join the conversation, come over to our website, which is actually our Facebook page. Though, between you and me, Chris, I am actually working on a website, which is kolchaktapes.com. Sargoth. Strange name. I wonder. I wonder if he was truly destroyed. Or could he be the key to David's disappearance? Maybe this will tell me. Chapter 2, December 4th. It was a rainy afternoon when I received the letter. was Amanda's last time on the Cold Jack tapes. It's interesting because, you know, um, I don't want to say I'm an apologist for TV movies, but I'm definitely their biggest cheerleader, and I am so much with, like, sitcoms as well, and soap operas, and a lot of the old older television that I think people... Mm, 
either don't look back on fondly or didn't experience the first time. And I'm always going to be there to be its cheerleader. And I respect other people's opinions about it. I feel like things get bad when I'm being made to feel stupid for liking something. And as long as nobody does that, I'm fine with it. You know? Well, if you ever do a happy days podcast, I'll be right there until Jenny Piccolo show. <gasps> I love Jenny Piccolo. I am Jenny Piccolo. I mean, you'll get to know that if the more you get to know me, if I ever do come back because now apparently I live. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I'm totally Jenny Piccolo. I mean, I was her when I was a teenager. It's embarrassing to admit, but it's true. I like Jenny Piccolo when she was spoken about, but never seen. <laughs> she was wild. Oh, yeah, yeah. She. Um, I have a theory that there actually was no Jenny Piccolo, and that was kind of Aaron Morin's, Joni's uh, split personality. And that came about because Howard was a child molester. Oh, my God! And that's, yeah, what happened was Chuck was going to blow the whistle, but they took care of that son of a bitch. He's playing it out back someplace. Oh my god, mind blown. Killed in Vietnam. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> oh my, my gosh. Wow, your brain is kind of amazing, Mike. Don't even talk to me about Mrs. C and, and Fonzie. There's a whole edible thing going on there. That's white hot right there. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love it. 